This is Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Abandon ship! Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Troubled waters, triggers of global cataclysm. Is the ocean just a home for marine life and a theater for military patrols, or does it serve as a strategic platform the elites have used as a staging point and catalyst for the New World Order? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone from across the podverse. Now hold on, don't turn it off. I know it's different. You're not used to hearing my voice this early. And it's okay. Jason's not dead. He's here. But I'm introduced and I'm here to welcome you to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories right to the heart of conspiracy itself. And man, today we are going to talk about all kinds of stuff. The sinking of the Titanic, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and even Albert Pike's Three World Wars. But before we get into all that, I got to introduce him, Blacktastic himself, the co-host of this show, the one and only Jason Spears. Yo, what's happening, peoples? How you doing? Oh, man, I'm feeling pretty good, man. I don't think I've ever gotten an introduction before. No, this is the first time. You know, it, it makes me feel some kind of way. Hold up. I feel like something's missing. Hey, y'all in the back? Y'all know what to do. Mm. All right. It's off me. Bring it. Bring it. All right, that's enough. Well, now you can't say that they never applaud for you. I can't, but I still feel like that was forced. I mean, I think we force them to do it every time. No. Not that we're, like, condoning slavery or anything. Whoa, whoa. That's a trigger word for some people, son. Yeah, some of us are sensitive (laughs) about forced labor situations. If you're sensitive, then you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. I don't listen to it. I conduct it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about this one. I've been putting the work in for a minute. I had the idea, you know, sizzling in the brain pan for a while. So I'm excited to finally sit down and. Did you just say sizzling in the brain pan? Yeah. Okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an eighties baby. So around the nineties, you know, they had that whole thing about this is your brain on drugs. Uh-huh. And it was the egg sizzling in the pan. Yeah. Is that the same thing was happening to you? Very similar. Like this is your brain on, um, troubled waters, right? This is your brain on triggers of global, global cataclysm. It sizzles. Okay. I'm going to go with it. <laughs> All right. Sound like we got some good stuff to talk about today, man. I'm a little hesitant, though. Why? Because we're talking about water. Well, I was going to say, we've been doing a podcast for a while, and I'm not entirely sure that we have informed our listeners. They don't need to know. About your... Privacy rights dictate that <laughs> this remains between us. This is a HIPAA violation? Absolutely. <laughs> This, this was disclosed in, in a very protected space that I thought was safe. <laughs> you were about to violate the, I can't even say, patient-client privilege. Yeah, because you're not my patient. Now, you're going to violate best friend code. <laughs> it's okay. It's on the podcast. Anyway, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of our listeners that have not yet been apprised on 
your particular passionate perspective on large bodies of water. I like the way you put that. You know, and, and, and just, for the record, for the record, I'm not afraid. Okay. I never said, I never used the word fear. No, you didn't. I just said for the record. Okay. For those who may suspect, given my uh, ancestral background, that I may have an, a, a genetic predisposition to disliking <laughs> water. I will have you know, number one, I can swim. All right. And number two, I highly dislike large bodies of water. Highly. I can't stress it enough. <laughs> highly. You have a, a deep seated. Um, I have an atavistic caution. <laughs> an atavistic caution? Yes. Okay, this is a problem. Isn't atavistic, isn't that like generational? Yeah. So it's it's not biological, but it's atavistic? Absolutely. This is an interesting line that you're drawing. It's a learned behavior. All right. You gotta think you gotta you gotta think in nurture versus nature. And right now I am nurturing the fact that I don't like nature. Okay? Okay. What is it you wanna know about about this cautionary tale of which I have? Well, I just thought, you know, some of the listeners, you know, as they get to know us a little bit better, you know, might like to or at least appreciate your fears. You know, we caution people. Did about, I just tell you there ain't no fears? Okay, right. Okay, my mistake, my mistake. Your your concerns. Okay. Because we try to alert people to the dangers of the satanic control matrix, right? We tell them that, hey, you need to look out for uh, demonically inspired education. You know, look out for satanic mind control. You know, look out for the new world order because all of these are extensions of the Luciferian kingdom. There might be some uh, aquatic things that, that maybe they should be not afraid of, not afra- concerned about. So what do you think that they should be concerned about? All right, so I've got two main issues. All right. Okay, the first issue is that when it comes to large bodies of water, and I, I think I need to define large first. Okay. Okay. Anything bigger than a bathtub. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Anything bigger than that. Okay. I'm willing to stretch to jacuzzi hot tub area. All right. But that's like my, my limits. Okay. Swimming pools. Meh. All right. All right. Anything that I can't really see into bothers me. Okay. All right. Because it, it raises an issue for me. And that is what's in it. All right. I don't understand my uh, melanin deficient brethren that seem to lack what I would consider to be the God given common sense to at least consider what might be in said water before jumping haphazardly into it. It's funny that you say that real quick, not to derail you, but I remember being, (laughs) being a young country boy. The first time I got in an actual swimming pool where you could see through the water. Okay. And that terrified me. Why? Because I was like, if there's fish in here, I could see them. In a pond, I don't have to worry about it. There can be turtles and snakes and fish and oh catfish and, and all this stuff. And I don't have to worry about looking at it. Do you understand? I just added to my repertoire what's in a pond. <laughs> no idea that there could be turtles and snakes and catfish, you said? Yeah, we got catfish. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Yeah, never going in a pond now. <laughs> well, you didn't try the last time. Yeah, I, I was. I can't even talk to the people about this. But I was tortured on a pond. 
One day I may reveal what happened to me by saying co-host. Uh, or maybe we could put that story in the Patreon. I don't think I'm ready to reveal. I'm ready to reveal yeah. that to our Violation that would of be great. best friend clause. <laughs> but people paid good money for this. Story. Not for the violation, Christopher. <laughs> I have triggers. <laughs> this, this is borderline on it. But no, I thought it was weird that I could look around. And it kind of freaked me out because I was like, if there was stuff in here, I could see it. I don't know why it was weird. Because being in a pond was normal for me, so. No, for me, it's, it's it, the first thing is that you don't know what's in it. Like, if let's let's say. Um, I just I, told you. I'm at a, well, that's for your <laughs> pond. But let's say I'm in a body of water and talk to, talk to, you know, fish and wildlife or whatever. And they're like, there's there's no real fish in here. Like, we don't have, I mean, if we do, we have maybe a carp or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's not an alligator gar. I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they've they killed anybody recently. I, I might venture into that. All right. All right. But I guess I've seen too many documentaries. Like actual documentaries or like Hollywood documentaries? That's a fair question. All right. So so for me, the first thing is that like I watch shows like River Monsters. Uh-huh. Right? Where the, Have you ever seen that show? Yeah. Okay. When I found out actually what's in Rivers. Mm-hmm. X nay on ever going into a river. <laughs> X nay oopid stay. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm Sticks never on the stupid. Yeah, I'm never going into to a river because uh, you can't guarantee me that there's not something like an alligator gar, which okay. I didn't know existed until I watched that show. Okay, you can't guarantee me that there's not a three hundred, you know, three hundred pound catfish this that's lurking in there. And I can almost guarantee you that there is one. Exactly why you won't find my black line anywhere in that river, okay. especially if I can't see and verify. Okay, there's 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 nothing in here. The the second problem that I have is that I tend to have everything that wildlife wants. Everything wildlife wants? Absolutely. I got the two things that are like number one on almost all predators' lists. Okay. I got baby fat and dark meat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Them two things right there make me a prime target. <laughs> Everybody likes dark meat. Okay. And baby back ribs is never going out of style. <laughs> All right. And despite despite the 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 uh social stereotype, uh-huh. I can't swim, but I can't swim that fast. Okay. I'm okay. not out swimming things that <laughs> swim for a living. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm going down quick. And I'm not going to be able to explain to God, why are you up here early? See, what happened was Christopher pushed me off into a pond <laughs> and a snapping turtle took me out, Lord. This is like, you didn't run across me. I tried. It didn't quite work. I even charged up, God. You had gravity on that day, Lord, and down I went. Matter of fact, where was you, Jesus, to pull me out? Peter got pulled out. Matter of fact, the children of Israel didn't even have to walk across the water. You parted it for them. Me, I fell in and died. And now I'm here, God. I blame you. <laughs> and then I might quickly find myself going back down south. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you got to be careful about that. But no, I don't get that. I really don't understand people. Who, I've been to the beach, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a beautiful time, but a, a, a very stressful time for me. Okay. As soon as I got in the water. Um, I got hit with the vastness of the ocean. Mm-hmm. and went, went down to Florida with a friend of mine. And um, went to the golf side, uh-huh. which I was looking for the the O. 
found out that it's not the golf, it's the golf. Right. Those are two very different things, by the way. So do you think there was like golf balls instead of sand? Or? I wasn't quite sure why they called it the golf. But I was looking at a map trying to figure out where I was. And I was like, I think we're near the O. Only to find out there's no O. And we was between the, the U and the L. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. How are you looking at a map and didn't realize how it was spelled? Listen, the Mercator <laughs> projection is tricky. Okay. And when you go to urban schools, they don't always give you the full book and the full educational that you're looking for. You understand? <sighs> okay. That's right. Okay. So anyway, dude, I get out there and uh, the, the, the the sand of the shore starts to go away. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I know just enough to be dumb. Okay. And, and scare, scare myself. So as soon as I'm, I'm using my feet to feel around uh, on the on the the floor, I'm considering the ocean floor. Okay. But really, it's just the beach, right? Right. I'm out in the water using using my feet. I'm like six six one six two. So the water's coming up, and then it gets to about my chin, and I'm like, oh snap! I still feel the descent of the of the uh, the sand. It's still going down at an angle. I said, you know what's next? I, I can't feel it now. Now I can't feel it with my foot. I said, oh, snap. I'm at the continental shelf. Like, this is a drop-off that goes to the deep ocean. It's like right here. 30 feet out into I'm the water. I'm not even 30 feet, dude. I think I'm probably about, like, seven feet out. And I'm freaking out. Oh, that's great. This my is friend is looking at me. Shelf. Oh, my gosh. My friend's looking at me. They're like, you have got to be kidding me. First, you thought it was a gulf. Now you think seven feet out, you're at... The, you're at the drop-off, the continental shelf. I was like, I've seen it on the map. It's a different color. You can zoom <laughs> in on Google and see this. And it's only like that far exactly. off the coast. Right. right. You're talking like a few inches. Yeah. So imagine me doing the calculations in my mind. I'm like, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you what pissed me off. What well, happened to be at the beach, probably about mm, 50, 50, 75 feet in front of us, uh-huh. there were people standing up. <laughs> no, for real, I'm sitting there and my church mind is going crazy. And I'm like, it is like a miracle. These are Peters. These are people like standing, <laughs> walking on the water. And what made me so upset is it was a bunch of white folks. And I was like, see me, they could walk on water, but here I am sinking. <laughs> like, this is the most racist ocean I've ever been in. Dark meat is heavier. What did he say? Pause. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Christopher, this is a safe place. If, if you feel you need to disclose something, I think now I don't feel safe though. You know, I said baby fat and <laughs> dark meat. I don't know why you look at your chops. <laughs> oh, oh man. Oh, but no, dude, I, I was freaking out out there. Really, it was the the feeling the the pressure of the ocean, the waves. Realizing that this body of water goes on past the horizon. Realizing how small I am in comparison Mm -hmm. to this this just organic thing, this ocean, is crazy. Like, looking out across it and realizing Mexico's right over there. A little bit further than that, but yeah. Yeah, but still, like, I mean, you can't do that a lot of places. It really messes with your sensibilities. Okay. So I don't find it relaxing getting into that environment, especially when there are predators in there. And I really had to pray to get in there. 
Really? I did. I really had to have a talk with God. And I'm like, listen, I know you made all of this, but my Negro senses are going off. They're going haywire. So here's what I'm going to need. I need you to put a 200-yard perimeter from every place that, that, that my foot touches. I don't want any predators there at all. He's like, 200 yards is pretty close. <laughs> That's what God said to yeah. you? You don't, you don't want to stretch it out? <laughs> yeah. Sniper great whites? Like, what do you, what do you Dude, do you know it's like to have a conversation with God? You're like, well, I mean, I'll, what's an appropriate distance, Lord? <laughs> what, what would you do in my situation? He's like, I would just walk on the water. I wouldn't get in it. <laughs> Clearly, you haven't read your Bible recently. <laughs> So no, I, I I told him I gave him another another distance. He said okay. I said really? So yeah, if you're gonna trust me, I'll do it. That's dope. So I got in the water, and stayed there. I think for about six hours. Oh wow! Yeah, I was out there like all day. But yeah, that whole thing, I I, I don't get the water, and then getting out in the deep ocean, that stuff is just like terrifying. Like, I couldn't do the whole Titanic thing. I couldn't just take a vessel and go across. Oh, I'd love it. I went. I mean, as a as a young teenager, uh, my dad took us fishing in the Gulf of Mexico with a U. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only one that caught fish. Off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the only one that caught fish. I loved it. It was it was a good memory. How far did you go out in the Gulf? Oh, I don't know. I was young. I, I have like screenshots like of my memory. I know my dad got sick because he got seasick a lot. I know we had some porpoises swim underneath our boat. And then there was one, don't tell your mom you're not wearing a life jacket <laughs> memory. <laughs> but outside of that, that's about all I remember. My dad did catch an itty-bitty catfish or something that he had to throw back. Okay. But I was the only one that caught fish large enough to keep. So that was cool. You know, I was this young kid and out fishing all the grown adults. Yeah, I mean, the idea of maybe going out there on a boat and, and fishing kind of seems nice. But you have to account for so many things in that space. You don't like, have to. Well, you need to account for storms that could come off, that could come up that you, you may not see. Okay. You got to account for rough seas. And if you should so happen to have to go in the water, you need to be able to to maintain maintain your composure and actually swim. And that's not the same as swimming in a pool. Right. You know, so it's a different skill set. And if you maintain that, you still have to deal with wildlife that you can't guarantee isn't around you. I mean, to me, it's the equivalent of going and sleeping in in a field in the, in India, right? Okay. Like there are tigers out there. Yeah. It's a pretty good chance they'll find you. Well, I mean, I, I did sleeping in uh, the Badlands, South Dakota, and there was coyotes, and we woke up to a uh, just underneath the horizon, like where the sun was rising. There was a giant bison just chilling in the in the field. Yeah, that's awesome. So see, it's it's interesting because for the longest time I thought your perspective on this water thing was just insane. Like, no, you're you're off the deep end. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. But recently, especially after prepping this episode, I'm more inclined to think that you're right. But beyond the animals in the water, there seems to be another danger that I'd like to address. What's that? Jews. I'm sorry, what? Jews, not Jews, like Jews. You know, you can't just like call them that, right? Why not? The Anti-Defamation League will get you. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the, the synagogue of Satan, right? What? On behalf of my fellow enslaved brethren, I take offense to the fact that you <laughs> put them under, under synagogue of Satan. Like, they may be a part of it, 
Well, I think the synagogue of Satan incorporates more people. Uh, a larger umbrella. Than just quote unquote Jews, although there are some Jews in it. Okay, that's fair. I wouldn't say Jews are the. Okay, so the thing that you need to look out for in the water is the Kazarians, right? Because not the Jews. Because, I mean, thinking about it, they probably can't swim. Hold on, bro. My brain is a little triggered and slow right now. All right, because we're talking about all this death and water. And I told you I got issues with that. Uh-huh. But did you just say that Jews can't swim? Yeah, it's it's biblical. What do you mean? Well, I mean, they were escaping Egypt, right? Uh-huh. And there was the Red Sea that they obviously couldn't swim across. So God had to part the Red Sea. You said it earlier. He <laughs> parted the Red Sea because they can't swim. Bro, listen. I'm going to tell you something right now. First off, you can't say that. Second of all, all you're doing is making me more of a Hebrew Israelite now. Because now I'm starting to think that the original Jews were black if they just couldn't swim and had to walk across. Right, that's what I'm saying. You know, this is this is, uh, this is is not only patronizing, this is concerning. Like, I feel like my whole worldview is going to be shifted. I love that you're like, you can't say that, but wait a minute, you might be right. Well, I'm just now I'm trying to think of the Jews, if they were black, talk about, man, hey, don't get my fro wet while we go across this here Red Sea. Right, they even needed dry land. It wasn't even muddy when they walked across. It had to be dry. That's because you can't get your Jew Jordans. Oh, you can't even say that. Oh, <laughs> ho, 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 ho. You can't get your, your, your sandal what? Jordans wet. <laughs> It's going to be a problem. Oh, this is going to get flagged. Oh, this is bad. It's going to get is, this really is rough. flagged. Yeah, you know, you got to keep your footwear nice and right. You got to. That's crazy. Oh, shoot. Okay. I got to get it together. All right. Aside, joke, all joking aside, I can't even get it together. All joking aside, bro, let's talk. Troubled waters, right? triggers for global cataclysm all right man let's get into it what you got so it seems as i look over history like you learn we learn all these history lessons in isolation but when you really start kind of looking over the horizon you kind of see that there's a pattern of tragic events nautical events that that precede major global shifts throughout history really yeah like what well, like the sinking of the Titanic happened in 1912. Okay. You know what happened the very next year? Less people went across the Atlantic. <laughs> more, I'm going to take More, more people decrease. pray to the God that can part the sea. Yeah, I, I would imagine. <laughs> That's funny. No, the very next year was uh, the establishment of the Federal Reserve. Well, that happened in 1913. Yeah. 1912, this happened. Right. The, the Titanic? The Titanic sank in 1912. The very next year, we have the Federal Reserve. Now, it seems like a little bit of a stretch, right? It, uh, on the surface, man, but given some of the stuff to re-research, like my mind's spinning right now because I know the Federal Reserve was put in place by the uh, the Rothschilds mm-hmm. through their North American contacts, which would have been, um, I want to say, Jacob Schiff. Yeah, I think he's one of them. Uh, and J.P. Moreland. Morgan. Morgan. Uh, yeah. Moreland's the, the author. I get them confused all the They're time. They're so close. Yeah, <laughs> but but J.P. Morgan um, would have been their, their North American contacts. Mm-hmm. J.P. was also, if I remember correctly, responsible for financing the the Titanic build and its sister ships. 
Yeah, well, uh, let's let me check my notes just to make sure. J.P. Morgan owned the International Mercantile Marine Company, which owned the White Star Line Company, which is the um, the line that built the Titanic. They manufactured the Titanic, and, yeah. and its sister ships. Right, so I think it had two other ships. Yeah, that because were one fleet. of one of the conspiracies is that it wasn't actually the Titanic; it was one of the sister ships, so they could collect insurance on it. I don't know about all that, but there were two similar ships to the Titanic. Yeah, I think James Cameron would disagree. You think so? Yeah, definitely <laughs> think it was the Titanic. Well, I would disagree. I think two people can fit on a floating door, but we don't need to get into all that. <laughs> Leave Jack alone. <laughs> but no, so it's 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 not just I mean it's a little bit of conjecture, but here let me lay it out to you this way. There's at least a connection point, which is which is JP, which is also then the Rothschilds. Right. But there's another connection to the Rothschilds. Okay, who what's that? Have you ever heard of John Jacob Astor the Fourth? Um, I have. I haven't done much research on him, but I know that Fitz Sprigmeyer covers the Astors in his book, 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati. Right. I believe that they are one of the principal uh, bloodlines. They that, are. That helped to establish, uh, I think they married off or some one of the other names were the Windsors. Okay. Uh, I mean, not the Windsors, the Waldorf. And so when that, that hotel in New York, mm-hmm. the Waldorf Astoria, yeah, it's yeah. actually named after that line. Oh, the Astors? Yeah, Astoria. Oh, see that I didn't know. See some of the random things that you're able to do and learn when you're not dangling your feet in the water. <laughs> it's crazy because um, my my little brother actually brought this up and he's got a way of just, because he's not even like conspiracy minded. He kind of buys into mainstream a little bit more. Okay. But he's always like, oh, have you even ever considered this? And just throws a mountain of information at my feet. And he's like, ah, maybe maybe check that out a little bit. And then walks off. Sounds like him. He's he, good for that. <laughs> he, he is. But yeah, he dropped, he dropped John Jacob Astor, who at the time was the richest person. When he was living, he was the richest person in the world. So I actually have a snippet from uh, Finance Today, and I'll read that. It said, at the time of his death, John Jacob Astor had a reported net worth of $20 million, or roughly 0.9% of the U.S. GDP at the time. Had he done this today, his net worth would be somewhere in the region of $210 billion. At the time of his death, John Jacob Astor was the richest man in the world. With this title, here's the important part, with this title going to Nathan Mayer Rothschild the head of the British branch of the Rothschild family after his death. Besides being a multi-billionaire by today's standards, John Jacob Astor holds the title of being the U.S.'s first millionaire, with him being a millionaire before most people had even heard the term. That almost makes me wonder, is he the Monopoly man? I don't know. I mean, I just wonder if that's his likeness on the game. I don't know. I have a picture here. And he doesn't have the monocle, but he does have the, I'm feeling a little bit like Ace Ventura here. And you must be the Monopoly guy because he's got the dangly mustache. He does. Interesting. I don't know, but it seems like it would make sense if you were literally the first millionaire in U.S. history. Right. That's crazy. 
So not only was he the richest person, but they say that he actually opposed the idea of the central bank, the Federal Reserve. Okay. So we talk about how there's a lot of infighting between these Illuminati bloodlines, right? So mm -hmm. we know full well the Rothschilds wanted the Federal Reserve. Apparently, John Jacob Astor did not. And there's a couple other people, Benjamin uh, Guggenheim and Isla Strauss, along with Jacob Astor, were all financiers that supposedly opposed the Federal Reserve. They were all on the Titanic when it sank. Really? Yeah. And the Titanic was built by a line that J.P. Morgan owned, who was also a proponent of the Federal Reserve. So it's interesting to me. Now, there's nothing definitive. Like, you can't look at it and go, they intentionally sank the Titanic because they wanted to remove the opposition to the Federal Reserve. But I tell you what, the richest person in the world living in America opposing central banking is a huge obstacle. Right? Yeah. So it's interesting that he goes down in this ship. And the very next year, they're able to form the Federal Reserve Act. He didn't even get out in a lifeboat? Nope. He died sinking. Now, that seems odd. How do you mean? Well, if you're that wealthy, right? Okay. You would think either you got your own, your own lifeboat or you buy your way onto a lifeboat, even if it's women and children. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a person that wealthy. I, I, I don't know the person. I don't know the man, you know, personally. Obviously, I wasn't even born at that point. But I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I have a hard time believing that someone of that magnitude of wealth attached to the people that he's attached to mm -hmm. would be that austere that he, he would be willing to let other people have his, his place on a, on a lifeboat and not preserve his own life. I mean, maybe. I don't know what the chaos was like. Are you suggesting that maybe he was taken out before the sinking of the ship? I mean, you know how my mind works. That's definitely where I'm going to go. Okay. Uh, we don't have any cooperating evidence. Right. But it would just seem weird. Like, that person would just be like, nah, you guys go. I'm okay. Yeah, that is interesting. Similarly to the, the mass shooting where one of the people that got killed was um, the guy that created another uh, water engine, right? Water-powered engine. Mm-hmm. So they use a like a, a mass incident to disguise the the assassination of That's an individual. That's definitely a, a tactic that you use. Like even the CIA uses that type of tactic when necessary. So I wouldn't put it past. I mean, create a tragedy a tragedy like this that would distract people for decades. All they talk about is the Titanic, and very few talk about the the victims and the significance of some of those victims from an economic perspective. Right. I'd never even heard the name John Jacobs Astor. You keep saying that, and all I want to—I keep waiting for you to finish Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> I know. I thought that too, and I really the 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 conspiracy part of my brain was like, "Ooh, they created this little nursery rhyme, right, Jingleheimer Schmidt, to kind of boast about the fact that they killed this dude, right?" So, oh, this is just a little kid song. It. I couldn't find anything at all. I dug long and hard trying to find something about the sinister roots of John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Is it just a nursery rhyme? Yeah, apparently, at least what I could find, it it sounds a little biased, but it, it seems like it was just a nursery rhyme because there was a bunch of uh, 
German immigrants at the time okay. that shared the name, John Jacobs. Like, it was a common name at the time. Oh, okay. So, your name is my name, your name is my name, too. Whenever we go out, people always shout. So, it's just like, there's way too many John Jacobs around here, and it became a goofy little song. That's funny. I used to annoy my, my preschool teachers with that. Did you? Oh, I was singing all the time. People always shout. Oh, <laughs> you know how many times I would sing that with his nap time? That's funny. Everybody be Why quiet, his... and I'd be like, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but yeah, and, the, and then it's also interesting that he passed on the title of Richest Man in the World to... To Nathan. Nathan, yeah. Yeah. A little bit too much of a coincidence, if you ask me. Nothing definitive, but at least we go, okay, this is weird. And this is only one incident that happens on the water, or that has happened on the water. Okay, so you've got more. Yeah. Uh, moving forward to 1915, and I tried to put these in, in chronological order. Forward to 1915, have you heard of the sinking of the Lusitania? I have. Uh, I don't remember all the details. Okay. I was actually a little bit disappointed in this one because we read um, G. Edward Griffin's Creature from Jekyll Island, right? Is the Lusitania the one that had all the people on the British ship that was shot down crossing from Britain to, the, to Germany or in that theater? Uh-huh. Shot down by German subs? A German U-boat, yeah. Okay. And wasn't it supposed to be the thing that got Germany? Well, it was the— I mean, not Germany. Got Britain into the war? No, it would have been the thing that got America into the war because there was a bunch of civilians, American— Okay. Citizens on that. They were ship. on the Lusitania. Yeah. And in, in in G. Edward Griffin, in the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, he tells it is like the incident that triggers our involvement into World War One. Okay. So when I went when I looked into it, I was a little bit disappointed that that's not exactly what happened. So as far as I can tell, there was some shady work because clearly they wanted the US to help out with the war. And we have, again, uh, Woodrow Wilson is a president who promised to keep us out of the war. I think that was a promise that he made in, in 1916. He's like, we're not going to go to war. But 1915 is when this event happens. And um, Churchill wanted the backup, right? He wanted the superpower of the United States. So there's lots of talk that uh, they had changed flags. Like they, they weren't flying... Um, national flags. They had changed the painting on some of these civilian vessels. Mm -hmm. And what it was supposed to do is it was really supposed to dis make it more difficult for the German U-boats to distinguish between military vessels and civilian vessels. Yeah, they actually came up um, with some very provocative paint schemes that were supposed to break up the, the hull of the ship on the horizon and make it difficult to spot it, especially if you were using, like they would use um, a, a, a two-tone paint scheme, like a zebra stripe. Mm -hmm. But then they were painted almost like lightning stripes or whatever. It was irregular shapes. Okay. They were painted along the hull mm -hmm. in order to disguise the ship and break up its its signature when viewed through a periscope at a distance. Okay. They went through a whole bunch of different little techniques to try to, quote unquote, keep these, these vessels safe. Okay. So did they did they stop doing that to, to make it so... The U-boats couldn't tell the difference between military and civilian because there was an there was an intentional um, confusion 
in, in this particular time because they wanted the the conspiracy is that they wanted German U-boats to attack U.S. Um, merchant vessels in order to pull pull the U.S. into the war. Yeah, I'm not sure how successful it was. Okay, I can't remember where I came across that information. I'm sure some weird YouTube video. Okay, uh, that I was watching. I think that it had some measure of success in defeating U-boats, but I think they changed their tactic or or uh, the technology and oh, okay. still ended up sinking some ships. Okay, it's interesting because again, um, Griffin says that this was like the incident. So, but it it really just ended up that President Wilson denounced attacks on passenger ships, you know, as a repeated issue, warning that the central powers of the United States wouldn't tolerate unrestricted submarine warfare, which was actually a violation of international law. And this was the declaration after the sinking of the Lusitania. Because if you're watching the timeline, we actually don't go to war until 1917, because it was in January of 1917 that the um, German U-boats attacked again U.S. ships, and they sunk seven of them. Okay. And it was at that point that um, Woodrow Wilson requested Congress or whatever to go to war, whatever that process is to go to war. Because I found an article um, said President Woodrow Wilson had promised in November of 1916 to, quote, keep us out of war. But after Germany resumed unrestricted submarine warfare in February of 1917, and the uh, Zimmerman telegram revealed that German uh, Germany promises to give U.S. territory to Mexico, that the president called for a joint session of Congress on April 2nd, where he asked for a declaration of war. So it's weird. I almost felt gypped because I was like, Griffin, my boy, you let me down. This is two years. The sinking of the Lusitania was two years before we actually went to war. So how is it this event? Does he explain? Well, I didn't ask him. I don't, no, I don't, but I meant like I, in, in the book. <laughs> well, he explains all of this stuff. And like I said, they changed the schemes. Um, but he makes it sound like that was the event. So I was like, it doesn't make sense when it was really the intentional attack of German U-boats against seven other ships two years later. So... This doesn't do anything to damage my theory here. Did it change, though, did the sinking of the Lusitania change public opinion? That's that's what I think it did, because I was looking for other sources, and I even found um, that Britannica.com says that the sinking of the Lusitania was in, it indirectly contributed to the entry of the United States into World War I. So we have a president that promised to completely keep us out of war, and it wasn't until this sinking of the Lusitania happened that now we go, okay, it allows Woodrow Wilson to draw a line in the sand and go, if you cross this, then we're coming for you. So it sounds like a, uh, I mean, you could look at it two different ways. Like that's the kind of president that you want to have. Like, look, this is the line. Cause I mean, that's what Putin did with the Ukraine thing. He's like, if you keep doing this, I'm going to respond. However, it also gives a easy cut and dry. All right. When we're ready for the United States to join the war, this is all we have to do. Right. So it's 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 interesting. But yeah, even Britannica.com says that the sinking of the Lusitania contributed to us joining World War II, or wor- World War One. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm starting to connect dots, man. It's starting to get interesting, especially with Wilson being a stooge put in place by the financial elite, uh, which would include the Rothschilds. Yeah. Like they, they b- pretty much bought the White House which was necessary to get the Federal Reserve Act passed 
and the 16th Amendment. Which is uh, income tax, right? Yes. Interesting. Sets up the IRS and, and, and income tax. Well, since you mentioned financing, I have a snippet here from the All Wars or Banker Wars article that I'd like to read to you. Okay. So it says, although the war started between Austria, Hungary, and Serbia, it quickly shifted to focus on Germany, whose industrial capacity was seen as an economic threat to Great Britain, who saw the decline of the British pound as a result of too much emphasis on financial activity to the neglect of agricultural, agriculture, industrial development, and infrastructure, not unlike present-day United States. Although pre-war Germany had a private central bank, it was heavily restricted and inflation kept to reasonable levels. Under governmental control, investment was guaranteed to internal economic development, and Germany was seen as a major power. So in the media of the day, Germany was portrayed as the prime opponent of, the, of World War I, and not just defeated, but its industrial base flattened. So following the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was ordered to pay the war cost of all the participating nations, even though Germany had not actually started the war. This amounted to three times the value of all of Germany itself. Germany's private central bank, to whom Germany had gone deeply into debt to pay the cost of the war, broke free of government control and massive inflation. <clears throat> massive inflation followed, mostly triggered by currency speculators, permanently trapping the German people in endless debt. That's a lot for a person to process through. It's a lot. But essentially, what, I, what I'm gathering from this article is the fact that Germany was made to be the villain. Yes. And it wasn't because of racial tension, because that comes in World War II, mm -hmm. supposedly. Um, or the the uh the killing of who was that, Franz Ferdinand? I think so. Yeah, that supposedly popped off all of World War One. Mm -hmm. it, what it's starting to sound like is that Germany was the fall guy for something that was orchestrated beyond them. Right. They didn't apparently they didn't start the war. But they weren't just the fall guy, like they were the focus. They didn't start it, but that's why we had World War One. Explain. Well, because they had a they did have a central bank, but it was tightly controlled by their government. It wasn't a privately owned bank, which is what the Rothschilds wanted. What these Khazarians, right, the synagogue of Satan, try to institute to gain control over the peoples of a nation. Because Mayor Rothschild said, you know, let me or permit me to print the currency and control the currency of a nation. I care not who writes its laws. So Germany was increasing their power, right, in industry as, as Great Britain was going down. But they were preserved from the controlling arm of the Rothschilds. So they were like, we can't have this. We can't have a growing power that we don't have control of financially. In fact... I have a quote here from Winston Churchill where he kind of explains his motivation for World War One. And Winston Churchill was the British prime minister. Yes, for World War One and World War Two. Okay. He says, should Germany merchandise, which is do business, again in the next 50 years, we have led this war, World War One, in vain. So that's what Winston Churchill said in the Times in 1919. Had nothing to do with saving people's lives, 
It was about whether or not they could do business in the next 50 years. That was his motivation. Okay, you got to let that sink in. Yeah. Because what that means is that, that was a, there's a massive cover-up. Like, this sounds criminal. Yeah. It also makes me think immediately, <laughs> how many wars are being fought for economics and we as the public are being told emotional reasons for why we're going? Mm-hmm. Because what's curious is it's never the wealthy people like this that go and fight the wars. No. It's the poor and impoverished that fight. It's the everyday man that fight and lose their lives. Yeah. It's the middle and lower class. It's not good. And to have him say, like just the audacity that you'd come out after and be like, this is what we wanted to prevent. We don't want them to do business for at least 50 years. Or we killed all those people in vain. Which if you reverse engineer that, that if they were able to prevent Germany from doing business for at least 50 years, then we slaughtered all that people and it was a good reason. That's yeah. not a good reason to kill these people. At all. But I, I mean, to people like this, they don't seem to have the same type of value on life that, that, that we would have. Well, that's true. You know, if you're considered, as, as the elites often say, uh, as, to outsiders, or you're considered going which is just cattle, mm-hmm. then you're ready for the slaughter and we slaughter you or take you to market when it benefits us to get the most profit. Yeah, that makes sense. And so if, if taking you to market, i.e. going to war for the sake of what we could get from Germany, which is profit, we'll slaughter you. Yeah. It's not a comforting thought, though. It's not. I think that's why they call our children kids. Because they're nothing but goats for the slaughter. Yeah, a baby goat is called, is called a kid, right? Yep. Yeah. It's like that tie back to um, Thor Dark World. When he brings a human to Asgard. And Odin says they're, they don't belong here, they're goats. Yeah. They, they have no business being in, in Asgard any more than a goat has business being at a... Dinner table. Or dinner something table, like something like that. Yeah. My words are mere noises to you that you ignore them completely. She's ill. She is mortal. Illness is their defining trait. I brought her here because we can help her. She does not belong here in Asgard any more than a goat belongs at a banquet table. Did he just... Who do you think you are? I am Odin, king of Asgard, protector of the Nine Realms. Oh. I was like, oh, that's not accidental. Mm -mm. That's not accidental. But you want to fast forward a little bit further, maybe around 1941? That's World War II. This is World War II. So, so far, we've got sinking the Titanic. Uh-huh. We've got the Lusitania. Yep. Which takes us uh, into World War I. Yes. It draws the United States in. Right. As soon as you said that drew the United States into World War I, mm-hmm. I, I thought, what drew the United States into World War II? Well, that would be the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Exactly, which seems already, haven't gotten to the details yet, but it does seem to have a a correlation or, or it seems to be a pattern developing. Right. With it, these events that draw us in. Right. If nothing else, it's suspicious because we have the whole world involved in, in a war that America wants no part of in some particular attack that happens on the surface of the water 
is a precipitating event. So it's a, so let's get into it a little bit. Okay. So we if we're looking at this and we're even supposing or suggesting that the the attack on Pearl Harbor was intended or planned or anything, we have to look at why might the bankers want the US to join the war. Right? Okay, that's a good question. So we kind of have to look at the motivation. So there's a bunch of different groups that financed all sides in World War II. But the Rothschilds were actually some who funded Hitler. However, after taking some of their money, he realized that he wanted to escape that controlling arm of the central bankers. So he began printing his own money. So I have another snippet here from All Wars or Banker Wars. And for anyone that's interested, uh, that's going to be located on the Patreon. There's a 45-minute video where the guy that wrote it offers some commentary and reads sections of it. And then we'll have the, the whole article uh, as a link posted in there too. Really, really fascinating stuff. But he says, when the Weimar Republic collapsed economically, it opened the door for the National Socialists to take power. Their first financial move was to issue their own state currency, which was not borrowed from private central bankers. Freed from having to pay interest on the money in circulation, Germany blossomed and quickly began to rebuild its industry. The media called it the German miracle. Time magazine uh, lionized Hitler for his amazing improvement in life for the German people and the explosion of German industry, and even named him Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1938. I'm telling you, you know how many people today could not imagine Hitler being named Man of the Year? It's not Time right? Magazine, no less. Uh-huh. It seems like, it. I mean, it seems crazy until, unless you account for the fact that Time Magazine is one of the Illuminati publications. It's right. owned by the Rothschilds. Right. If you're buying into mainstream news, there's no way that Hitler would end up on the cover of Time. Right. But I think it's owned by the same people who own life. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, they're they're not it's not like an independent publication the way it's it's purported in most people's minds. Right. And they're CIA agents in all of those important positions to change the narrative and all of that to get us to think about history and world events the way they want us to. Right. But here we see that once again, Germany's industrial output had become a threat to Great Britain. And this, Jason, it just won't do. It goes against everything that the central banking mafia desires, right? Right. So I got some more quotes from Churchill. Okay. And there's lots of people that like Churchill. I mean, he was a thinker, but I, when I came across these quotes... I mean, flabbergasted just scratches the surface on, on what I thought about these. Okay, I'm intrigued. What do you say? Okay, so we have um, in a 1936 broadcast, Winston Churchill makes the statement that we will force this war upon Hitler if he wants it or not. Now, this isn't huge, but a lot of times that we are told that Hitler was the aggressor, right? Yeah. When Churchill is like, whether Hitler wants it or not, we're coming for him. That that's changes perspective a little bit. Absolutely, because you're, you're normally thinking that that Germany is responsible. You're not thinking of the quote unquote allied states as being the aggressors, right? It, I mean, we really have to to look at this differently. So then, Winston Churchill said uh, to Truman, uh, March of 1946, 46, he says the war wasn't only about abolishing fas fascism, but to conquer sales markets. 
Th- this, this one makes me angry. We could have, if we had intended so, prevented this war from breaking out without doing one shot. But we didn't want to. That right there is infuriating. Yes. I mean, do you know, I'm, you probably know, but I'm, I mean, rhetorically speaking, you know how many lives were lost? How many families were ruined? How many sons were not able to father or sire children because they're gone? People who couldn't, bloodlines that were cut off, people who couldn't come into the earth? Yeah. For economics? Yeah. They could have, they could have done it. Stopped it from breaking out without firing a single shot, but they did not want it. The thing that I wonder is what were the German people, I'm sorry, what were the British people being told to galvanize them to literally, unbeknownst, offer up their children as a, as a blood sacrifice? Yeah, I don't know. Because, On the altar of economics. Well, because like we're talking here, it took the attack of Pearl Harbor to get the American people on board, right? It did. Because there is a hearts and mind campaign that you have to run. You need to because these are the people that are going to go fight and die. Yeah. You have to give them a reason that they will accept to go on the battlefield and fight. Who's someone that said rich men or they said, I think it was politicians. Like politicians go to war, but... But the uh, the civilians or the regular people are the ones who fight something like that. Mm-hmm. This is a clear cut case, and the, a, a good example of of them not executing this well would be the Civil War. Mm. Because Abraham Lincoln tried to convince everyone, "Hey, this is about freeing slaves," right? With the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, I think it was they, they signed up for four four or six months at that point, and afterwards they were all Who's like they? the um, the American people. Sorry. Okay. So the hearts and minds, right? The spirit of America. They were like, cool, if we're in this to free people, let's do it. So they all sign up for their four-month, six-month um, tour. Tour. Well, afterwards, they're like, well, this isn't really what it's about. So nobody joined back up, which is why Abraham Lincoln had to start drafting people. And even at that point, no one wanted to fight Lincoln's war. So there was rioting and arson happening in the North because nobody wanted to go to war for the particular agendas that were at foot. So I think that that was a, uh, a stain on the mark of the elite, right? Okay. Cause then at that point they're like, okay, we've got to do more to convince people. They have to be convinced at whatever war we're doing or whatever our particular agenda is, is on point because they're going to revolt and there's way more of them than there are of us. So, which is why we see kind of the marketing step up, the propaganda step up after that to convince people, no matter what the war is, that it's a just cause. Bro, I'm already thinking in my lifetime, how many different military uh, conflicts, major military conflicts I've seen this country uh, embattled in. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them has a strong moral backbone. We're doing this because we are committing the ultimate good. We're fighting the axis of evil. Mm-hmm. It was that Bush, I think, that said that, uh, 43, when we went into Iraq? I think so. The second time? Mm-hmm. Um, I think 41 said something very similar. Okay. Kind of like that religious rhetoric to it, like, like we're on the cause or the side of good. There's a way, there's language that's used 
to galvanize support from the public. Right. So it's interesting. So if we're the ultimate good, what are the bad people doing, right? Like what are the crimes they're actually committing that forces our hand, the ultimate good to act against them? It would be a sensible question, right? Right. Well, conveniently, Churchill answers us again in 1960. And his quote is, Germany's unforgivable crime before World War II was his attempt to loosen its economy out of the world trade system and to build up an independent exchange system from which the world finance couldn't profit anymore. The fact that their unforgivable unforgivable crime before World War II was that they wanted to loosen their economy out of the, the, the grip of the world trade system. I think people may be wondering, why, why is that so bad? As soon as you say world trade, first you think of the towers. Yes, uh, yes. But, but if you're, especially if you're an American. Um, but if we're thinking beyond the shores of, of, of America, as we call it here, mm-hmm. um, and we're thinking globally, what's wrong with a global trade system? Well, there's nothing wrong necessarily with a a global trade system, but it's the actual global system that we have is that's the issue. And what is that system? So it's the the Rothschild. It's central banking. It's private central banking. So I think as as of right now, there's only two countries that aren't controlled by Rothschild central banks, and it'd be North Korea and Iran, I believe. Okay, so when we say normally when you hear central bank. Uh-huh. You think that central banks, especially if you've done any research in this area, that central banks are bad. Yes. But it would seem from a historical perspective that there are at least two types of central banks. How do you mean? Well, there seems to be a government-controlled central bank, mm-hmm. and then there seems to be a privately controlled, i.e. Rothschild-controlled central bank. Because Germany had a central bank, but they were not tied to the Rothschild banking system. Right. It was actually controlled by... The German government. Exactly. So that was a government-sponsored or government-controlled central bank. Mm -hmm. So I've been under the impression prior to this episode that central banks as a whole were were just bad. I mean, there is some debate on that because anytime you centralize control, there's danger. Okay. Because of all the control being in in one spot. And the, the dangers with the central bank, now depending on how they're governed... I mean, it's very similar to the fact that, you know, in our Cosmic Governments episode, we talk about that the the actual issues with those type of of governments isn't the structure of government itself. It's the governed people, right? Right. So if there's people that are in these positions that are running it correctly, then there's not so much of an issue. But if you're running a central bank with ill will towards the people or with greed, that can be a problem. And the central bank makes it really easy because it allows you to control all of the other banks. All of the subsequent banks or smaller banks in a system like that are beholden to the dictates of the central bank. Okay. So they control the issuance of money. They control um, the policy. So they say, like, how much you have to have in reserve for loaning and all of that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So there isn't anything necessarily inherently wrong about the structure, but it's precarious because it can easily be corrupted. So one controlled by the German government, like we just talk, talked about, has systems of checks and balances. And if the government, which is actually controlled by the people, 
has a strong hand on the bank, then it's less dangerous. The issue that we have with a Rothschild-controlled central bank, this world trade system that they're talking about, is that it's privately owned. No government has control over it. So it takes the what could be dangerous up a level that it's absolutely dangerous because they're not beholden to the wishes of anyone. Now, I that makes sense. I'm also wondering, though, is a Rothschild or is a government government controlled central bank a banking system that is based on fractional reserve lending and debt? Yes. So you're saying that both central bank systems are based off of that? Yeah. Okay. Because so here's the, one of the dangers: the central bank allows for fractional reserve lending because they control the issuance of money. And this is dangerous because it can cause what's called a run on the bank. If independent banks, if there's not a central bank to control this, independent banks will go out of business. They'll go bankrupt because if too many people come in and go, I want my money, but they only have 10% of all the people's money in hand, then it's called a run on the bank and it goes under. Mm -hmm. Well, the beauty of a central bank is that doesn't happen. Why not? Because they they provide the cash. They keep the individual banks from going under. So if something like that would happen, the the central bank comes in and either rescues them and like pays their debts, covers the assets that the people need, or will buy them out. So then they just become a direct arm of the central bank and not a private independent bank, which is one of the reasons why America is run by what four four banks. The large banks? Yeah, four large banks. Yeah. Have their hand in everything. Because the cent- Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America. Wells Fargo. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Because what happens is <clears throat> they're arms of the, the central bank. So when these smaller banks who who are running policy that the, the central bank establishes, they're not encouraged to have healthier money managing practices because they're just doing the, the they're following the rules set by the central bank. And if something bad happens, they get a bailout. They either get bailed out or they get bought out. Either way, there's no penalty for poor money management. Yeah. That's where we get things like quantitative easy Mm -hmm. and moral hazard in the, in the way that they produce the money. So the way the federal reserve produces money in the United States and the way that it creates money is it quote unquote purchases government bonds. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. But when it, it it'll purchase a bond and give the money to the US government. So the government owes the Federal Reserve that that bond when it comes to um, maturity. But the Federal Reserve doesn't print the interest. So our entire banking system and the money that's created and given to the government in this exchange is only a representation of debt and not actual assets. Now, I heard that explanation before, and it still didn't click for me. Okay. Now, the, another example that I heard a person say is, if let's break this system all the way down just to a single dollar. Mm-hmm. And if I'm, a, if I'm a central bank, and you, Christopher, are the American government, and you need a dollar from me, I give you the one dollar that's in circulation that we own, right? Mm-hmm. But I charge you a dollar in interest. Yes. How do you pay the dollar in interest when all you have is the dollar I loaned you? You can't. 
So I'd come, I'd come back to you with a dollar and go, okay, well, I have my dollar. I don't know how I got it because if I spent it, I wouldn't have it. But I got my dollar back. Mm-hmm. So I w- I'd love to pay you, Jason, Bank of Jason, but I only have $1 because that's all that you gave me. So, and you owe me $2. I owe you two. Is there any way that I could borrow another dollar sure, to I'll, pay this debt? I'll let you borrow another dollar so you have two. But now the entrance on that is you owe me $4. Well, I don't have an option because I have to pay you. Right. So give me two, but you still owe me four. So there's two more dollars that's unaccounted for that you owe me. Yeah. And so we keep printing and we keep owing. But imagine that on a massive scale with trillions of dollars in play instead of just, you know, one to four dollars. Yeah. Essentially, you can never pay the interest back without borrowing money to do that and borrowing money to pay the interest back incurs more interest. So it is a perpetual system of debt. Yeah, it's crazy. So the Nazis looked like they were actually going to win, but in defiance of the synagogue of Satan. So what do they do? They got to bring the big guns. They want the United States to come in, the superpower. But here's the problem. We talked about hearts and minds before, right? Yep. Well, FDR kept promising that your boys are not going to be sent to fight any foreign war. Over and over. In fact, you know what? We we have a, a clip of that. Let's play that. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. So the American people kept being told that their people were not going to be sent to a foreign war. But like I was just saying a minute ago, Germany refused to buy in to Rothschild-controlled private central banking, and it looked like they were going to win. And you can't let them win a global conflict and not buy in to this Rothschild money machine. Right, because it, be, it would bring credence, or not credence, it would bring credibility to their financial system and prove to the world that you don't need the Rothschild system to thrive. Right, and they don't want that. That makes sense. It's interesting because I tried to do a lot of research on whether or not we knew that the attack on Pearl Harbor was going to happen. So we have the American people. We know that they're convinced that they're not, they don't have to sacrifice their sons to this war, but now we need to send American troops. How do we win the hearts and minds? That's the question now. You do know we knew ahead of time. We did, but it's interesting as I looked up, Did we know about the attack on Pearl Harbor ahead of time? The term that keeps coming up, and it sounds like a lie because I found it everywhere, says there was no actionable intel. You heard that? I've heard that term before, yeah, like watching Jack Ryan. That's one of the things I've heard him say a lot. It seems like something important in the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not sure exactly what it means. Okay, well, I mean, on the nose, it sounds like they don't have enough intel to take action upon, right? All right. I can go with that. Like, we might be attacked, but we don't know when we're going to be attacked. We might not know who's going to attack us. We might not know where the attack is going to happen. So we can't take action against it. There's not actionable intel. So I went and looked up the definition. Okay. It says uh, information that can be followed up on 
with the further implication that a strategic plan should be undertaken to make positive use of the information gathered. That seems like a very convoluted... Doesn't really explain anything. (laughs) That's crazy. I came across a man that just said that uh, actual intelligence could be defined as intelligence that could be acted upon within a 12 to 72 hour period. It seems like a term that allows almost like plausible deniability. You throw it around so that you can get, you can, you can avoid certain situations that you don't want to get into. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it really has a concrete meaning. No, I'd get behind that because I thought it was suspicious that we never said we just didn't know, or we didn't find out in time to do anything about like, that's not the language that's used. Right. They said, we don't have actionable Intel and then kind of hide behind that legalese really. Yeah. It almost seems like we don't have enough intelligence that we can rely on in order to act. And that seems to be a, a subjective position of those in charge. Mm -hmm. Like what constitutes enough? Right. I mean, they had reports of, of, Ger- not Germans, they had reports of a Japanese fleet invading mm-hmm. and ignored it. From what I understand, they even knew of the plans prior to. Oh, really? Yeah, like the Pentagon knew, Washington knew. Interesting. And chose not to act. It's funny that we had enough actionable intel to go looking for weapons of mass destruction. Isn't it, though? Mm-hmm. Well, Never what? found them, but we had enough actionable intel. But we didn't have enough actionable intel to protect the people at the beaches of Pearl Harbor. Right? And so when you even when you when you look at the USS Arizona and the memorial there, mm-hmm. which is still like the, the the sunken ship, they built a memorial around it. Okay. Uh with bodies that were were not recovered. They're still in there? I believe so. Okay. Like thinking about the fact that our government at the highest levels was culpable in the murder of citizens in order to enact an emotional response from the citizenry in order to get that same citizenry involved in a global conflict to which they would pay the blood price. That's messed up. Right? But, I mean, we just found out that our allies said we could have not even gone to World War I, could have resolved the whole thing without firing a shot. But, hey, we just didn't want to do that. For If you, if you look at, a like, the what is it, the 30,000-foot view or whatever – like at this point, 1940s, the Rothschild-controlled central banking, the Federal Reserve, had already taken over America. And if they're the ones that are instituting the world trade system, then it, it, it makes sense that they would want an attack or they would want some event to force America's hand in, in this war. Right? Right. You know, because they're the ones, they're the world trade system that Churchill was talking about. So they're not going to let Germany rise to power and win a war not using their system and allow America to sit out. Okay. So whether or not we knew exactly when and where and how and by who Pearl Harbor was going to happen, it's interesting that we have yet another attack on the water that works as a trigger point to enact this global cataclysm, which is America joining World War II and then effectively winning World War II 
for the banker boys. If you're just looking at this from a political perspective, it's messed up. When you add the religious filter to it, it becomes even more sinister. Mm-hmm. Because you've got, in, in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, you've got a 33-degree Freemason who was in power. Right. With a vice president that was a 32nd-degree Freemason. Mm-hmm. And you have, again, ties, not just, not just economic ties, but you have economic slash religious ties between these two. Because we can't forget that FDR and um, I want to say Henry Wallace. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think Wallace is, is, is the right name. I don't know if Henry's is the right uh, first name. But as vice president, they were responsible for actually creating the layout of the $1 bill. They okay. were responsible for actually putting the esoteric symbols on the back of it for for splitting up the the great seal of the United States in the particular way they did with the obverse on the wrong side and the reverse on the, on the wrong side in order to communicate a message. Interesting. These are the same people. So they're involved in economics, Babylonian money magic, and they are put in office under the, the Rothschild power structure. Okay. That's a lot going on in order to get the United States into a war that you're proving by your research uh, was was orchestrated by the the Rothschild power complex in order to in order to lock down a Rothschild central banking in Germany. Mm hmm. It's a lot of moving parts. It is. But they play the long game because this goes back, I even think, before. I mean, if we're talking bloodlines of the Illuminati, right? This is way before uh, 1912 and the sinking of the Titanic. Like these are celestial agendas that are being brought to bear in our physical plane. Good point. It's it's the long war against God is what it really is. Right. To to borrow uh, Henry Morris's title. But then moving forward... 1964, have you heard of the Gulf of Tonkin incident? Vaguely. So I is, is that the Vietnam? Yeah. It's the other water event that was the trigger point for us going to war in so Vietnam. They have like these various events or, or facts stored away, but they're not in my mind, but they're not necessarily connected. Okay. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to do with this episode is I was like, it's suspicious that all of these are, are water-based attacks to precipitate these major events that all lend themselves to the agenda of the elite and the synagogue of Satan. Yeah, they all seem to be precursors for us going to war. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, the Wikipedia definition of the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, because it was 1964. So the Gulf of Tonkin incident was an international confrontation that led to the United States engaging more directly in the Vietnam War. It involved both a proven confrontation on August 2nd, 1964, carried out by the North Vietnamese forces in response to covert operations in the coastal region of the Gulf and a second claimed confrontation on August 4th, 1964, between ships of North Vietnam and the United States in the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. Originally, American claims blamed North Vietnam for both attacks but later investigation revealed that the second attack never happened. 
The American claim is that it was based mostly on erroneous interpretation communication intercepts. Interesting way to, to put it. Right. Now, filling in some background information. This is just after Kennedy's assassination. Yes. So Kennedy's assassinated in November 22nd of 63. Mm-hmm. And was that nine months later? So my God, I haven't done the math. August of 64, we have this, this situation. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, Kennedy didn't want to be involved in Vietnam. I don't think he did. LBJ, who was his successor. Conveniently enough. Did want to get involved. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Kennedy was assassinated, we started moving. Um, if I remember correctly, I think we started moving ass- assets into the region. Oh, oh, like right away? I think very shortly after. Because it's interesting. Could we, be mistaken. Just, just going off of memory. Okay, because we weren't supposed to be involved. Like we're allies with South Vietnam, but we weren't supposed to be directly involved in the, it, I mean, it's called the Vietnam War because it was against North and South Vietnam. Yeah, weren't we supposed to be training and supplying the South Vietnamese? I didn't even think we were supposed to be supplying. I thought we were supposed to be training, but like, Outside of that, we weren't supposed to be involved. But the, the uh, what is it, 1945, uh, the date the Office of Strategic Services, which is the forerunner of the CIA, they sent an army of special operations group called uh, Deer Team, codenamed Deer Team, to assist Vietnamese rebels fighting the Japanese occupying their land. And they called these operations the, the 34A operations. So we're not supposed to be down there actually getting our hands dirty, but we are. We're letting South Vietnamese use our boats. We're training with them. Uh, it's, it's, it was actually illegal at that point from a, from a, from a global standpoint because it wasn't our conflict. There was no aggression towards the U.S., so we shouldn't have, got, we shouldn't have been getting our hands dirty at that point. Does that hmm. make sense? Yeah, I didn't think it would be illegal. Well, I mean, the research that I was doing, because I, I— That's just interesting. It is. I don't know if it's against the Geneva Convention or, or, or whatever okay. to, to enact hostilities towards a, a nation that that isn't threatening you or whatever. I don't know exactly what those specific legal uh, terms are. I think we switched sides, though, in Vietnam. I think we promised the North Vietnamese that we would help the, the leader of it and then switched and helped the South. Really? Yeah, I got a lot of various facts or, or, or information running around, so I wish I'd had a chance to chase some of it down just to verify. Okay, I, I was coming into this fresh. I didn't know very much about Gulf of Tonkin at all. Yeah, I remember this is one of the things that, that was proven to be what they call a false flag exercise. Yeah, because what, what actually did happen, so we're we're down there and we're getting way more involved than we should with these 34A operations, and we have surveillance vessels running like the perimeter of the islands, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually had an incident, like Wikipedia was saying, the first incident was the North Vietnamese. Now, as far as I could tell, there wasn't any, like they didn't fire back and forth. We just got a little bit too close, right? Okay. So there was a slightly increased hostility between North Vietnamese and our surveillance vessel. Okay. So they kind of go further out to sea. They're like, you know, we're just going to avoid this altogether. We're going to move on. So that one actually happened. That one's well documented. Then what happens is a storm comes in. 
Storm comes in, and apparently all the people on the surveillance vessel were greenhorns, right? Okay. The newbies. Right. So they're reading all these varying sonar readings and all of this stuff. They don't know what they're doing. So it's, what I saw, it was like they fired something like 300 rounds into the ocean at nothing. The newbies? The newbies. Okay. Like everyone on the ship, they're like, oh, you know, off the port side, whatever, you know, zero, two, five degree. I don't know. I'm just making it all up. But they're firing randomly into the ocean at night in the midst of a storm. Finally, the storm settles down. Sun comes back up. Captain's like, all right, what happened? Like, where are the sightings? Where are the, the hard, you know, evidence? Did we hit anything? They didn't hit anything. There's no actual sightings of any North Vietnamese ships. Nothing. Hmm. So when they, they actually had to send the report to the Secretary of Defense or up the chain of command, you know, however that goes. And they said, yeah, zero confirmation. We were freaked out. We saw a North Vietnamese boat get too close earlier in the day. Storm brewed in, kind of freaked out, spent lots of money on ammunition, <laughs> throwing it in the water. But we, we have zero confirmation that it was North, North Vietnam. Okay. So that gets to a really interesting character, which is the Secretary of Defense, Robert Strange McNamara. His middle name is Strange? Yeah. No. Interesting. It sounds fake. Like, this stuff is ridiculous. His name is Robert Strange McNamara. And he was Secretary uh, of Defense from 61 to 68. So he would have been Secretary of Defense during this incident. And lots of people don't like him. I think he was even involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And people said that he should have been charged as a for war crimes for how he handled that situation. I didn't look into that too much to find out exactly why. But he gets this report from the intelligence vessel. vessel. So he looks it over and he gives his particular response. And he goes, yeah, well... After reading the report, it's my belief that it was absolutely North Vietnamese aggression. So then August 7th of 1964, that's when Congress passed the joint resolution empowering President Lyndon B. Johnson to take any necessary measures to defend the U.S. allies in South Asia. Hmm. All because of an event that never happened. And how do we know that it never happened because 2005, 2006 freedom of information act revealed that this strange McNamara knew for a fact that it was not North Vietnamese. He knew there was no confirmation of a vessel there, but they had to use this, like you said, false flag event to be the trigger point to getting us involved in the Vietnam war. I hope people are listening carefully. Mm hmm. Uh, because you, you hear this term false flag a lot, um, or, or let's just say more frequently nowadays. And it's definitely poo-pooed on. It's definitely something where people are saying, hey, that's just a conspiracy term. But be that as it may, or a conspiracy theorist term, but be that as it may, this is a clear example of the tactic. Right. You orchestrate an event in order to produce a response. That's what we call a Hegelian dialectic. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that tactic used in other places. We see it used a lot. Even in modern times, we see that used. Mm -hmm. Like there's an idea going around that if you want to, to if, if you want to take away the guns, 
in this country use events that stir up public sentimentality about firearm-related violence and do it in such a way that the public gets so fed up that they cry for a change. Mm -hmm. And that change being restrict guns. Despite your feeling on it, this is one of the examples that is given as this is how you can move a populace through different stages. You can manipulate them from where they're where they're at to where you want them to be using this tactic of a, of a Hegelian dialectic, which is problem, reaction, solution. Create a problem that has an anticipated reaction that will help substantiate a solution that you want. Yes. So you almost have to work backwards. You know what the solution is? You got to get people to react in such a way that they want or demand that solution mm-hmm. because of a problem and you initiate the problem. Right, like the Freedom of Information, not, oh, geez, no, the Patriot Act, shortly following 1911. You want to try that again? The Patriot Act. So they had this massive document. 1911? 9-11. I said, did I say 1911? Yeah, you got firearms on the brain. Oh, geez. Yeah, I do. I actually won a 1911 pretty bad. <laughs> Freudian slip. Yeah, that was a false flag moment. <laughs> But no, so we have the attack on the World Trade Centers, and immediately after, we have this huge legal document. Right, massive legislation. Right. There's no way it could have been written if they started it after the attack happened. So clearly, we are writing legislation, and we want them to pass the Patriot Act. So we need an event that gets the people to get on board with our agenda. Patriot Act, work backwards. How do we get them to be on board? Well, if we're under attack by terrorists, so then you foment a terrorist attack, which is the problem, that people react in kind, and then you get the, your solution is the Patriot Act gets passed. Which restricted huge amounts of, of, of public freedoms mm-hmm. for the sake of security. And a lot more that they haven't even executed or they haven't even acted on that are just sitting there waiting. I think it also helped you create Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. So it like, restructured the, the office of the, the presidency. Uh-huh. The office of the presidency. Wow. It, it restructured the office <laughs> of the president, created yeah. a new cabinet level position, and that became one of the largest policing agencies in the country. Which is crazy because if you're um, even accused of being a terrorist, then you lose all rights of a citizen. You don't have to follow due process. You don't get read the Miranda rights or anything like that. It Which, changes all of that. Yeah, and if you took a step back, if a country was attacked, how is the necessary response increased policing of the citizen, the citizenry? Mm-hmm. Like this was an, supposedly an external attack. Yeah, why is why are the victims being policed at a higher degree for a crime enacted against them? It makes no sense, but like we always see, when emotions increase, intelligence decreases. Exactly. It's, it's scary. You got to pay attention. So why did we want to get involved with Vietnam? Because the Vietnam War provided cover for massive drug trafficking for the Kazarian Mafia through the Pentagon, Pentagon and the CIA for off-the-books black ops money. I'm sorry. I got to stop you again. Okay. Kazarian Mafia? Well, we were talking about the people that couldn't swim earlier. Yes. So the Kazarians, they're the snake-worshipping cult from the Khazarian region that lied about being Jews moved into that position. They're the Rothschilds. They're the ones that instituted the money control 
the, the, the world trade system that we see. And they're the ones that had massive monetary benefits from black ops um, harvesting of the opium fields in Vietnam. There you go. For people who, who don't know, the Khazarians actually have their roots. It's an interesting system uh, for where they have their roots. So the reason that that group of people is called the Khazarians is the group of people that, that grew up in, in, the, in Khazaria, the land. I want to say it's um, uh, east of the Black Sea, that region. Okay. Um, but they have their roots or their ancestry ties back to a person um, named Askenaz. And Askenaz was the son of Japheth. He was, a, well, an ancestor, a descendant of Japheth. Okay. And that's important when you're looking at the three sons of Noah because people of the Hebraic Jews of the Old Testament trace their lineage through Shem, who was the brother of Japheth, but they don't trace it through Japheth. So when one of Japheth's descendants, Askenaz, sires a group of people that become known as Ashkenazi Jews who reside in the land of the Khazars, so they become known also as Khazarians. How do they claim Jewish ancestry when the Hebraic line of the Jews was through the line of Shem? Like these would have been their, their cousins. Mm -hmm. Are you asking me? No, I'm just saying for the people okay. who aren't familiar with it, that, that becomes the, the critical question. And so when you trace out through history, one of the ways that they claimed Jewish ancestry was because, uh, don't know the, the time frame, but there was a, basically their leader at that time was put under pressure to either, I think there was a, a Muslim Christian invasion. He had to decide, are you going to be Muslim or are you going to be Christian? Or convert, not, not Christian, but Muslim Jew. Mm -hmm. Jew. And he, they converted to Judaism in order to not be killed right, or not be um, excommunicated and ostracized. And so with that conversion to the religion of Judaism, they claim to be Jews. Mm -hmm. And throughout the, the, throughout the centuries, they've gotten into positions of power, both economically and in industries like entertainment and government. This is why, like when you heard Jay, uh, Kanye West talking about the entire entertainment industry is ran by Jewish people. This is what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. The Khazarians. Right. Not the Hebrew Israelites from the Old Testament. Right. And one of the things that was put in place by the Rothschilds was they developed an agency that would keep criticism off their back. And it was called the Anti-Defamation League. So anytime that statements are made trying to reveal this link, the ADL normally comes in and says, ah, oh, that's anti-Semitic. You can't say that. And so everything becomes washed and, and hushed hush. But all of the, this is the connection between that and the Rothschilds because the Rothschilds are descendants from the Khazarians. They, that is how they claim Jewish ancestry. Yep. Well put. I like that. Crazy, right? It, it is crazy. Like the whole connection point, like blew my mind, especially the fact that that's listed in scripture. Yeah. I was like, why did he get a mention? Who's Askenaz? <laughs> yeah. It, it's nuts. It's right, it's right there. I mean, showing just the, the current relevancy of scripture is pretty crazy. Right. But one thing that I wanted to highlight before we move on to our, our last event is Albert Pike's prophecy of the three world wars. Now, this is huge. It is. Now, some people think that it's, that it's fake. 
I mean, we'll we'll let you decide because it's really interesting. So Albert Pike was a, a grand master of the Scottish Rite Freemasons. And he ends up writing this letter to, forget his first name, Messini, another Freemason. And in it, in it, he outlines what he says is, is three particular world wars. And the first two, it's interesting to note, are dead on. The first two that he predict is dead on. The third one, well, we know that we have not experienced a third war, third world war yet, but it'll get it'll get interesting. I have a particular theory on this thing. So the first one in Albert Pike's letter, he says that the first world war must be brought about in order to permit the Illuminati to overthrow the power of the czars in Russia and of making that country a fortress of atheistic communism. The divergences caused by the agentur or the agents of the Illuminati between the British and Germanic empires will be used to foment this war. At the end of the war, communism will be used will be built and used in order to destroy the other governments and in order to weaken the religions. So that's the First World War, just like we saw it happen between German and Brit- Germany and Britain. The Second World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences between the fascist and the political Zionist. This war must be brought about so Nazism is destroyed and that the political Zionism be strong enough to institute a sovereign state of Israel and Palestine. During the Second World War, international communism must be strong enough in order to balance Christendom, which would then be restrained and held in check until the time when, the, when we would need it for the final social cataclysm. So again, that's what we see. It was Germany, the Nazis versus, versus the Zionists. And what was it, 1948, that Israel got reinstituted as a nation? Yeah. <laughs> so we have these these world wars and even global events taking place. So well, you know that's under that that's under uh, uh, conjecture. Is it or not? Not conjecture. Uh, what is the, the word I'm looking for? Uh, I can't think of the word, but but that that's under some level of scrutiny. What, the 1948? The fact that the nation of Israel was reconstituted then. Okay. Because, well, some people hold that that was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and that people are, that the, the Israelites are, are given a new homeland and invited back in. But then some of the history here would suggest that maybe this is not the biblical answer. That, oh. the, that the formation of that, that nation state known as Israel mm-hmm. was really a Rothschild organization. You have the six-sided star mm-hmm. that's the, that serves as the flag. Yeah. Um, that's supposedly called the Star of Solomon, but doesn't show up anywhere in the biblical record. Most Jews don't even claim that as an as an actual Israeli symbol. Mm-hmm. But it is the symbol for for witchcraft. Right, the Kabbalah. Exactly. And that's on the their flag. You have all of these things that kind of point to maybe this is not what it's being billed as, mm-hmm. but it speaks more to the possibility that this is Zionism, right? More than it is a fulfillment of scripture. Well, it could I be say, both. Could be. I mean, Israel being declared a nation is one thing. Who is actually occupying and manipulating that nation is something. But it was supposed to be that the ancient tri- that the original twelve tribes were restored back to their lands. Okay, I gotcha. 
Don't I'm know not familiar with those specific prophecy so my mistake well i'm not sure that that's exactly what's happened i mean we'd have to tra- look at the people who are there because most of the people who are who claim to be jews now i often don't hear them associated with the 12 tribes i gotcha that and makes sense with the cross mixing mm-hmm. and with people being able to identify identify as jew via the religion of judaism as opposed to the ancestry it confuses who's really in the land Okay. Just because I say I'm a Jew does not mean I am one who has ancient Hebrew Israelite heritage, which we just pointed out with the Khazarians. I gotcha. But I can say the Jews are in the land. And I, if I can say that, then maybe I can also say then that this is being fulfilled. Okay. So I haven't, personally, I haven't landed on it. I'm mm-hmm. trying to sort through these things. But, but just offering up different views to the listener? Yeah. Okay, I can appreciate that. And there's different views about this Albert uh, Pike prophecy of the three world wars, too. I'm sold on that. Are you? <laughs> it's fascinating. But no, I, I'm not sold. I got more research to do on that. But well, very well, fascinating. Even if it's not as old as it says, and even if it was written after World War II, which seems a little suspicious, because it seems like we would we would recognize that. Um, the prophecy of the Third World War is interesting given the next incident that I want to talk about. Okay. But whether or not you think that it's, you know, supernatural, like they're actually practicing magic and able to divine from the spirit realm the things that are going to happen, or that this quote-unquote prophecy is just a tactical plan, that this is what we're going to do, it's it's startling, it's accuracy, especially this, this third part. I'm not going to read, we're a little bit long on time, so I'm not going to read the whole description of the Third World War. But Albert Pike says that uh, the Third World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the agents of the Illuminati between the political Zionist and the leaders of the Islamic world. That's all you need to know for, for my purposes of my theory. It breaks down and gets in a little bit more detail, but it's claiming that the Third World War would be based off of and fomented by the division between Zionists and Islam. So it would be a world war between Jews and Muslims. Tr- that would be the trigger, right? Right. So keep that in mind because we haven't experienced the Third World War yet, but there was an incident that had us pretty close to it, which is the attack on the USS Liberty. Have you heard of that? No. No? No. Okay, this one, this one's disturbing. So this takes place during the Six Days War. Israel Six Day War? Uh-huh. Between Israel and Egypt, which is occupied by Islam or Muslims. Can you even have a Six Day War? We've been talking about propaganda mm-hmm. uh, offline and thinking about a six-day war. I was like, isn't that a battle? Yeah, you would think. Right? Mm-hmm. It seems like it hypes it up more. It does. Which, if it's used as propaganda to garner uh, public opinion, mm-hmm. oh, we went to war, and we beat them in six days. Like You had a battle. I, we don't even know who started the battle. Right, right. Interesting. So we have this older ship that's decked out with all types of new surveillance equipment. So there's there's a documentary... What? This is the one that the Brewers covered. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. So it's decked out all types of um, communication antennas and things like state of the art. So there's a there's a documentary called The Sacrifice Sacrificing Liberty. It's four hours long. 
Okay. Wonderful. We're going to put it in, in the Patreon. You listen to it? You oh, yeah. It? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. If I wasn't fired up about this episode and the point that I'm going to that I'm going to bring home here, watching that, I was like, oh, buddy. In fact, you talked about the Star of David. Yeah. This documentary is so well done that there's a there's a specific song written for the documentary that they play it in the beginning. They might hint at it as a, as a musical motif in, in the middle and they play it at the end. But the opening line says, I saw, I saw the Star of Rim fan. That's what that symbol's called. Yeah. The Star of David is really the Star of Solomon, and for the Kabbalah, it's the Star of Rim fan. Nice. Yes, and that's what they saw. So anyway, excellent documentary. We'll have a couple clips from it in here. We'll, we'll post the link. But a bunch of noobs, and you actually had two groups on this ship. You had like the, um, the cloak and dagger folks that are actually reading the intel, and then you have like the... Uh, the fresh-faced 20-year-olds that are on the ship, running the ship. So there's a little bit of a, not dissension, but um, a little bit of tribalism. Okay. Because typically on a ship, everyone would talk to everyone, but the spooks don't talk to the regular enlisted men on the ship. But because it's a, it's a high-tech surveillance vessel, th- that's why they're there. Okay. So they're out there, and they're sailing up and down the coast of Africa, real slow, you know, just trying to listen to anything they can to figure out what's going on. Then all of a the sudden they get this call that they got to hightail it up to, oh, where is it? The, the Mediterranean Sea. That's what I was thinking. The Sinai Peninsula. Okay. Because that's where um, Israel is fighting Egypt. During the Six-Day War. Yeah. Okay. So they hightail it up there. And, and one of the things they say is it was real suspicious because they had moved slow like this whole time, like under 12 knots because they're, oh, wow. they're supposed to be picking up intel. Right. So they'd slow and then they'd stop if they heard something they thought was interesting and then they'd pick back up and they're just sailing up and down the coast. And then they got to hightail it all ahead flank to the Mediterranean Sea. So they get there and they're supposed to be running surveillance. And on this particular day, so it would be June 8th, 1967. Okay. So I, I did a little bit of research. John F. Kennedy got assassinated. LBJ takes his place. But this is actually when LBJ got elected. Because okay. I, I wanted to throw some shade and be like, still, another unelected? I can't. He actually got elected for, for this position. So they're sailing around up there. And then on this particular day, they have Israeli surveillance vessels fly over them. 12 different times they have surve- um, Israeli surveillance flying over top of them so close that they, they're waving at the pilots, right? We're allied with Israel. So they're like throwing their fists up in the air, you know, like go get them boys. The, feeling relatively safe that they've got somebody on their back because this particular vessel doesn't have very many armaments because it's an intelligence um, gathering vessel. Okay. So they're up there sailing around 12 different passes by Israeli surveillance and then unmarked black fighter jets fly several passes over the the Lusitania. Just litters the thing. Or not the Lusitania, the Liberty. Sorry, they both started with an L. Forgive me. But the Liberty. So they're taking out all all the intelligent or all the antennas, all the communications with the passing of the, the jets. Okay. Then they get torpedo boats that show up, and this is where that Star of Rim fan 
applies because the torpedo boats were marked. The, the surveillance vessels were Israeli. The jets were unmarked, but torpedo boats show up later and they have the Star of Rimfam, the Star of David attached to the side. Okay. And everything on the ship, they even, in the midst of the attack, they raise another larger American flag that's like, look, we're Americans, stop shooting at us. Doesn't stop. Really? Yep. They fire five torpedoes. One of them hits. It ended up being um, 171 wounded and 34 people killed. So this is just an act of friendly fire. Well, Israel actually apologized and offered all the sailors that survived like $200 because it was a mistake. It was a mistaken identity. Even though the name of the ship was painted on the side, I think it had the number 5-1 on it. They were uh, flying American flags. They were sailing slow. They were, all the sailors, when they were on deck, had the white hats. But, it's not funny what happened, but it reminds me of this Boondock episode. Oh, geez. Where, where one of the uh, characters, Uncle Ruckus, gets involved in a police shooting for pulling out his safety orange wallet that somehow gets mistaken for a gun. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. So they said that this thing, after the attack, so it didn't sink. Okay. It didn't sink. And it's, sorry, I'm not sure where to go. There's so much information in my head. Uh, It's amazing that it didn't sink. The torpedo put an almost 40-foot hole in the side of it. And then they they counted 5,000 holes of either 12-millimeter cannon or 50-cal armor-piercing rounds. So for those that are unaware, it's either a hole large enough to put your fist through or a hole large enough to almost get your head through. They counted 5,000 of these rounds. In fact, uh, we have a clip from one of the guys uh, that's talking about this. The cover-up was on, and I knew that. So I start cutting... Uh, even uh, out at sea, because I didn't, I didn't want them to get rid of all the evidence. Just what they did, and I cut probably 30 of these out of 40. I was tasked to count how many holes we had. They told us to quit counting at 8:50. They said quit counting. That's enough. At 8:50, there were over 5,000 armor-piercing bullets in this ship. 5,000 came off uh, the uh, torpedo boats or the airplanes. We thought, well, listen, pass the hole up, the torpedo hole, and let us go home battle scarred and let America see what they did to us. And absolutely not. It's none of your business what we do to government property. This is not your property. It's some other government just like you are. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. So what ended up happening was in the midst of this attack, and the idea is, the theory is that they wanted the Lusitania, they wanted the Liberty to sink. I mean, clearly, you got several jets passing over in torpedo boats. You don't put 5,000 rounds in a torpedo hole in a ship if if you wanted to stay afloat. Right. But there was one sailor who was able to get on deck and reconnect a coaxial cable to an antenna that they hadn't used yet so it didn't get shot out, and they were able to radio for help. How long did it take help to get there? Uh, I believe 
17 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, but here's the problem. They radio for help, and the guy on the closest um, aircraft carrier sends out ships. Well, that's not going to help. Well, to figure out what's going on. So he, he sends out ships to investigate and even like to fight off the attack. So I believe he sends one group of regular ships or um, aircraft, sorry, one group of aircraft. That's what I said. What anything was going to help. Yeah. I don't know why I said ships. One group of aircraft that were just normal aircraft and then another four that were actually armed with nuclear weapons. Oh. Because you don't mess with our people, right? Okay. And then there's an admiral that tells him to recall the aircraft. Don't go get them. Really? Yeah. And interesting enough, and I cannot find, to save my life, I cannot find the family tree on these dirty people, but it's Admiral John R. McNamara. So you don't know if he's related to Bob McNamara? I can't. When I look these people up, it shows their descendants. Doesn't show who their parents are. But you have Bob McNamara, who's the Secretary of Defense at the time. Okay. And John McNamara, he's the one that's telling him, nope, don't send the aircraft to help out the Liberty. So they call for help, but nobody comes for 17 hours. Now, the Israelis back off and they stop attacking them. Okay. But nobody goes to help them. They let them putter along for 17 hours with 40-foot torpedo hole and 5,000 other holes in this vessel. That is insane. 171 people injured for 17 hours before they send people. Insane. But there's more people involved. Okay. John, you know the name John McCain, right? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Yes. Well, the John McCain that we know, he had a father who was Admiral John S. McCain Jr. Okay. So I have this article. It says the Liberty incident also remains the only peacetime attack on a U.S. Navy vessel not investigated by Congress. Note, several things to be like, suspicious, suspicious, that's one of them. The cover-up would have been impossible but for the complicity of Admiral John S. McCain Jr., father of the Arizona senator, who was then stationed in London as the commander-in-chief U.S. Naval Forces in Europe. After the incident, Admiral McCain allowed a court of inquiry just one week to complete an investigation. A crippling limitation in light of the complex nature of the event and the dispersion of the witnesses. He also instructed the court to investigate only the ship's response to the attack. As the court's senior legal counsel later explained, Admiral McCain was adamant that we were not to travel to Israel or contact the Israelis concerning this matter. Nor did the court consider written testimony from any of the 60 medical evacuees who were unable to testify in person, including James Ennis, who was an officer of the deck when the attack began. Wow. Yes. Now, one of the things that they they bring up in this documentary is that as soon as the attack happened, we actually launched um, a particular attack. Because if, if we wanted to use this as a false flag, mm-hmm. or not even a false flag, like they really got shot down, but wanted to use it as another nautical trigger for World War III, then 
we would have blamed it on the Muslims, right? Mm -hmm. Because we sent our ship up there, completely defenseless, Muslims sink it, and now we go to war. But it would have ended up being a a World War III because the Russians, like everyone's looking. Anytime there's a conflict, it's much bigger than you think. Everyone's watching for people to escalate it. Okay. So Russia's got ships in the water, and everyone's watching to see, hey, because America is allied with, with Israel— are they actually going to increase hostility to support Israel? Because if they do that, everybody's coming out with their guns. Hmm. We had launched ships. I think we lost launched, uh, I was trying to find it. In my, oh, here it is. Uh, we launched 50 jets and additional boats filled with Marines to attack the Arabs. They're in the air because this attack on the Liberty was planned. Once that guy got the... Um, that coax cable connected and called for help, they got to return all these ships because you can't attack a nation for seeking a boat that's still floating around. Hmm. Right. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Later, the captain, Captain McGonagall, he was the only person, he, he ended up winning the Medal of Honor. Okay. For being the captain of the ship and surviving, right? Okay. But it's interesting Later in his life, he admitted that he spun the story because those ahead of him said that if, if he did that, then they would, um, they'd give him the Medal of Honor and he'd get promoted and all of that. And out of the over 3,000 people to ever receive the Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. Captain McGonagall of the USS Liberty is the only one that didn't get it handed to him by the president himself. I wonder why. I don't know. It's like this, this underhanded thing. Interesting. Quick side note, our Medal of Honor looks suspiciously like the pentagram. Have you ever noticed that? Yes. It's crazy. I was even messaging um, Drew Misson from Missing the Point and some of his uh, police officer attire, like their, their imagery is very similar to this. And he was like, well, you know what this looks like? I was like, yeah, it's a pentagram. That's what our Medal of Honor looks like. So if you're interested, I actually put together a side-by-side that'll be in the studio notes for our patrons that are in uh, Overwatch or higher tier. It, I mean, you can look it up yourself. It's interesting to see it side-by-side, though. I agree. So the cover-up gets a little bit more strange because there's another admiral. Like, there's so many high-ranking officers that just have their hand in, in corrupting this ridiculous thing. But Admiral Kidd debriefed the survivors and threatened them not to tell anyone that it was Israel. So we actually have a clip where the guy tells what happened in his interview with Isaac C. Kidd Jr. I'm in my rack in my underwear. We're all in our underwear. We're sleeping, and there's Admiral Kidd drinking a coffee right there. He's like four feet from me. He was a pretty uh, big guy, and uh, he was just talking to us normally. Want well, to know how we're doing? He got there and he uh, he looked at us and he says, "Hey, listen, I'm just like your your dad. I want to know everything because I want I want to get this taken care of." And he and he took off his stars, threw them on the table, and it rang like a big bell. And I thought, "Wow, you know, this is this is cool. We can open up to him." So the other guys went first, and I was the last one. I was the only one in damage control that he had talked to. But we was a small group. Think of it, just five of us. So uh, he said, tell me exactly what happened. This is when he got to me. He said, "Uh, did you see the uh, MTBs, motor torpedo boats? I said, yes, sir, I did. He says, don't call me, sir. I told you I was just like you did. I said, okay. 
I saw the MP- MTBs. He said, did you see any markings on it? I said, absolutely. I saw the Star of David very clearly on the uh, motor torpedo boats. And I thought they were here to rescue us. He says, yeah, I know that. I heard about that. Continue. He said, continue. He said, did you see the flag flying? I said, yes, I did. Did you see uh, the uh, jet aircraft? I said, I could hear them, but I understood they had no markings on them. This is okay. He says, what was your what was your duty station again? I says, well, I was on scene leader in uh, the forward repair party. He says, you were all over the ship? I says, yes. He says, did you see uh, any torpedoes? I says, I saw two aft. I didn't see the one that hit the ship. Where the other two went, I have no idea. Did you uh, think the ship was going to sink? I said, absolutely. I thought it was going to sink. I mean, it rolled over. I thought it was going to tip over, and it just stopped. And then he put his stars back on. He got real close to me, and he got beat red. He said, I want to tell you something, sailor. Now I'm an admiral again. Do you ever repeat one word about the USS Liberty and who did it to you? I guarantee I'll see you in Leavenworth or worse. You know what worse means? I said, yes, sir, I do. I said, well, what did you leave us out there alone for? He says, I'm an admiral now. You call me admiral or sir, period. He slammed the door and walked out, and I went up to the door and started beating my hands against it. F you, Admiral. F you, Admiral. Hope you hear me. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that was super intense. Yeah. Super intense. I couldn't imagine coming out of that. And the, I mean, a lot of these guys are crying when they tell this story because they're like finding boots and shoes and limbs of their fellow sailors. And they're either having to pick them up and put them together or dig them out of the hold or just sweep them off the deck. Mm-hmm. Like, it's horrible to right. then go back and have your commanding officers treat you like that. Right. <laughs> and as we talk about all of this being the synagogue of Satan, the Rothschild, the Illuminati, you know, all these things, it's interesting that the Secretary of Defense, that other McNamara that mm-hmm. we talked about, Bob. Bob. And he was the Secretary of Defense during the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the sinking or the attempted sinking of the USS Liberty. Do you know what he did once he retired as Secretary of Defense? No, what? He became president of the World Bank. Shut up. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. I mean, it's clear. Like the collusion is clear. It's like all those side by sides that you see between like, uh, the Pfizer CEOs mm-hmm. and the NIH or the World Health Organization, how you can just mix and match and switch them up. Right. It's the same way. When you take the Secretary of Defense, President of the, of the World Bank, it's it's nonsense. It's nonsense. I mean, you would expect them to have some sort of life outside of politics, but it's interesting you would come out of the defense industry, the, the defense department, and go and not just be in finance, you going to join the president of the World Bank? Right. Which makes sense, though, that if he helped them, you know, get all that black ops money from Vietnam and, you know, he was their, their patsy or whatever, their errand boy as secretary of defense, makes sense that they'd elevate him to a high position once he gets out. True. But here's what I find fascinating. We spent the whole episode talking about the agendas of the elite, the bloodlines of the Illuminati. You can trace them back through the Bible and all of these things. It'd be real easy to get hopeless. Yeah? 
I agree. But I think it's interesting that they were unsuccessful because if they would have sunk the Liberty, it would have fulfilled the third world war of Albert hmm. Pike's prophecy. Okay. Cause it would have been, you know, Muslims versus, uh, the Jews, exactly what he said, would have played right in hand of everything that they wanted. But somehow, every single one of these sailors that survived said that it is an it was an act of God or it was a miracle that the ship did not sink. I mean, you're talking 5,000 rounds plus a 40-foot hole in the side? Yeah. And they said they all expected it to just roll over and sink. And on top of that, it was left alone for 17 hours after the attack. Never sank. And the only way they were able to call for help was a single coaxial cable attached to an antenna was able to thwart all of the workings of the Illuminati for a hundred years to try to bring all nations of the world together in this conflict. Hmm. That gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. That's God going, not today, Satan. That doesn't seem coincidental. No, it doesn't. So we're not only the victims of the agendas of the dark realm, we're also the beneficiaries of God's sovereign plan. I like that. It reminds me a lot of, and, and people miss this, is when God took control over the time of his betrayal. Explain. So we talk about collusion and conspiracies and come on, Christians, you have to believe that some people in positions of power can conspire against other people because it's it's principled in the Bible. What was that joke you sent where the guy was saying, you don't have to believe in all conspiracy theories, but everybody should have at least... Right, he's like, he's like, you don't believe in any? Like, like none of them? You just believe the government's out here batting 100%? Right, batting 1,000? Now there's just certain people I have no time for. Like if you're sexist or homophobic or if you don't believe in conspiracy theories. How do you not believe in any conspiracy theories? I understand not all of them, not most of them, but you don't believe in any conspiracy theories? You just think the government's just batting a thousand and telling us the whole truth? That's a strong stance to take. I don't like talking about things I don't feel like I'm truly knowledgeable in. But I do know this. Our government is placed in charge of all of its people. I'm a father who's been placed in charge of just one son. And I lie to that nigga all the time. Right. One of these has got to be true. Just just law of diminishing returns. You've got to have one of these that's factual. I'm... I, I'm not a huge stand-up guy. I have watched that clip like 30 times. Oh, yeah. His was, delivery is excellent. It's yeah. such a good point. Yeah, it's hilarious. It, it was so good. But for those that are unaware, uh, Judas had conspired with the religious leaders for 30 pieces, 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus Christ. Which some have expertly speculated. $7.50. It's $7.50. Right. So got him on discount. Messiah on discount. Blue light Just special. Saying. <laughs> But in their plotting, because the religious leaders were concerned about the crowds rebelling against this, this action because Jesus had crowd support at that time, right? they agreed not to do it on a feast day. And I, I got to thank Chuck Missler for this because I missed it. Okay. Heard it the, the story a hundred times or whatever, you completely miss it. So during Passover, which is a feast day... Jesus says, hey, someone in this room is going to betray me. And it seems all cryptic. And you're like, why? Why don't you just say, dude, get out? Right. But he, he lets his disciples know, hey, somebody's going to betray me, and it's Judas. And he approaches it in such a way that everyone's a little bit confused until Judas stands up and walks out because Jesus is like, whatever you have to do, do it quickly. 
Now everyone knows that Judas is going to try to betray Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if he waits longer, then they'll have time to act against him. So when Jesus is like, go and do it now, Judas goes and tells the people. So they find Jesus that night, which is not what they planned. It's on a feast day because there's tons of people in town. So again, it's God's timing. It looks like, like the enemy, but when the rubber meets the road, I, I think it really happens the way that God wants it to. He allows so much, but he still restrains all the evil. And I think that this coax cable, he, he restrains evil at a certain point. Okay. And I think that this attack on the US, USS Liberty the saving of those men, the holding the ship above water and the attaching of that coax cable to call for help was definitely an act of God. And it was done in direct contravention to all of the elites, the banker boys and everyone that was trying to foment this war for monetary purposes. Fascinating. Yeah. It's clear there are satanic agendas afoot. There are powerful entities, both terrestrial and celestial plotting and conspiring <clears throat> against the kingdom of heaven and the human realm. Both. It's a war on both planes. But there's a force far greater, an army that we actually have access to, and a power that outpaces the works of evil. And that's important to remember, because we are in a war that constantly spills over into our world and our lives. And if we tell these stories, but we're not able to tie these aspects together, then we're afraid what you might end up hearing is just this. And we don't want that. At all. That's the sound of information going in one ear and right out the next. Which makes this whole time pointless. It does. What that raises is the idea of everything we've heard today forces this question. What's the significance of what happens on the water? You know, is the ocean just like we said at the beginning, just there as a habitat for, for, for marine life? Or is it some somehow serving as a platform for the elite to bring about the catalyst that causes these type of wars and helps to complete their agenda. I'm thinking based on all the stuff that you've shared today, that clearly there's more going on on the water than just a little bit of fishing and military patrol. Oh, for sure. It seems as though the, the, that the waterways are incredibly important platforms for helping shape not just national agenda and not even just global agenda, but but are shaping spiritual campaigns that are trying to manifest in the earth. Like this seems to be the jump off point. Right. Especially in the modern era. It's crazy. Very least raise the alarm. Like tell people. Like look at the agendas that are play at play. Hey, don't turn a blind eye to it. Right. You know, one of the things we didn't cover was the USS Cole. Okay. Which I believe was one of the ships that was destroyed uh, under Clinton when the, I think it was right around the time the World Trade Centers were first attacked. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Uh-uh. This was a bombing in, in the New York Trade Centers down in the garage or whatever. Okay. Uh, it was like the first time that the, the World Trade Centers got attacked um, in recent history. I don't know the full history of, of the buildings. But about that same time, there was a a uh, Navy vessel in the Middle East that had a small small ship or boat or whatever come up to it that had explosives on it. 
mm-hmm. and blew a huge hole in it. Really? Huge hole. That's crazy. And I was like, oh, snap. Are we going back to war with Iraq? Mm-hmm. Because this, this is between Big Daddy Bush and Baby Bush. This is Clinton. Okay. So we had already had the, the first Iraq war. Gotcha. Left Saddam in, in, in play. Even though we basically defeated his army, he was supposed to leave. We, we let him stay mm-hmm. by not forcing his removal. And then now we have another incident there in the Middle East that could trigger instability, could trigger a war. Okay. We're st- we see these patterns yeah. showing up. Clearly patterns. And even if the whole water thing is just a coincidence, mm-hmm. the larger issue is, is not a coincidence. The fact that there are actual documented agendas that are being utilized to push not just nation states, but to push whole people groups into conflict with one another is something that nobody should ignore. Right. We need to pay attention. This should mean we should be questioning the official narrative because certain rhetoric is going to be used to, to, to garner public passion. To garner the, the 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 emotional fuel necessary to push certain responses, you know, to push we need to go to war, to push yeah 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 war is actually imminent, to push these ideas throughout society because people start talking, mm-hmm. people want to know hey what do you think about what happened oh we we gotta fight, we gotta go, oh you really think we should go to war I don't want to go to war oh, psh, absolutely should have been at war. You know, these are the conversations that are going to start happening and minds are going to be shaped. Mm-hmm. You know, some, how many people have you heard, dude, that said 9-11 occurred, knew immediately where I was, and turned around and re-enlisted? Had to do my duty for my, my country. Interesting. Is there a lot that said that? There are a lot of people that, that re-enlisted. Okay. Immediately. They wanted to do their patriotic duty. And that's not Die. to... Well, it's it, that's the duty's not necessarily to die, but that was going to be the end result. You know, a lot of people ended up give, giving their lives uh, for that, and that's the part that really angers me—not just the lives that were lost, mm-hmm. but then on top of that, the lives that were that were needlessly sacrificed. Yeah, on this playing field, and not just American lives. There were a lot of people on the other side that lost lives, families that were devastated. Right, unnecessarily. Exactly. And when you, uh, I think back to that time, all I heard were people talking about what needs to happen. You got to do your patriotic duty, you got to fight for your country, this, that, and the other. And it seems to make sense. You know, it's easy to fall into that trap and, and to get on board with it. Then you come across a, an episode like this, this information, and you, you look into that, uh, piece that you were talking about about our all wars are banker wars mm-hmm. and you realize that the things that are being fought are being done by by bankers by the 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 monetary cabal that exists it's gotta infuriate people it should it which, should absolutely infuriate people right which means responsibly we've got to stop and think wait a minute what happened the last time i heard something like this yes like okay i i do remember I remember I was ready to go do X, Y, and Z. Like, hopefully it's, it, it sobers people up so that they will not so readily be gull- gullible and led astray. 
by the talking heads, the pundits, uh, all the people on TV that are going to tell us what we should do. Don't let those people think for you. You got to think for yourself. And when there's a history of this over, what, 50 some odd years mm-hmm. that shows how these these conflicts are manipulated for financial gain or financial ruin, we ought to really consider deeply why we go to war. For sure. And another thing, I mean, despite what side you fall on this, I think it you need to be careful who you put your trust in. We want some, we're wired to to trust people in some sense. Like we're communal beings. And as communal beings, there's an element of trust that's necessary for community. Right. So we're wired to need that and want that, but we have to be careful. Don't let the satanic control matrix hijack, counterfeit, or usurp your trust in different institutions. Because that's one of the things that's happened. We trust the government because they said they were Christians. So all these Christians trust the government and they can do whatever they want because they're doing God's will. No, 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 no. We got to step back and we got to look. Because if you're willing to put all of your trust in the government, you're liable to think that you're just sitting under some happy umbrella of governmental authority in Kansas. But the truth is... You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You got to obey the rules. You got to obey the rules. Critical to survival in a hostile territory. Right. Like uh, Tom Chandler was saying on our other episode, that this is, we have these, so we know that everything we do matters, that we don't forget who we are because we have these codes. Right. And clearly, given all of these different situations, we're in a hostile territory. We absolutely are. That makes the first rule that much more critical. And that is you have to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Shows like this are a great step, but then do do your research, do your homework. Right. If Grab you, on YouTube, watch a video. You know, it's not going to take, you don't have to go to college and go take courses in history to get this stuff. Right. You can hop on YouTube, put something on in the background while you cook, clean, or do whatever you're doing and get these pieces of information because this, not having it is what allows the public to be manipulated so easily. The lack of our understanding and it's not because of a lack of access. Normally, just we just don't want to do it. We got other stuff that we're more interested in. Right. But educating yourself in a hostile environment is critical. And we make mistakes. So don't just, please, don't just put all of your chips on, well, Operation Red Pill said. Right. Because we, I mean, we do a lot of work to try to give you the highest quality and most accurate information that we can find. But we are not perfect. No, I'll misspeak in a minute. Yeah. You've done that a lot today. Shut up. <laughs> I'm going to count that as a misspeak on your part. It's factually incorrect. Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, so the first thing you got to know is you got to know your war doctrine. You got to know what the Bible says because it was relevant when it was written. And like we've been saying all along, it's still relevant today. Right. One of the things that it tells us <clears throat> is that the enemy's plotting against us. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, is giving him some instruction on how to behave. And he's like, he says, 2 Corinthians 2, 1, so that Satan might not outwit us, which means he's trying to. 
for we are not unaware of his schemes. So he is scheming. He is conspiring. We know that he took one third of the angels with him. So there is a massive group of people in the celestial realm that are scheming and conspiring and planning and plotting our demise. Spot on, man. We can't let them outwit us. Right. Cannot happen. Scripture also warns us that there will be trouble. This is Jason's favorite scripture. John 16, He's like, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And interestingly enough, I think this example of the, the saving of the USS Liberty proves, I mean, we could ask questions. Why didn't he stop the first one? Why didn't he stop the second one? He seems to be in a lot of cases, a Hail Mary pass kind of a God. What do you mean? Well, there's a bunch of moments that like the enemy looks like they're going to win, right? Mm -hmm. All flesh was corrupted, save Noah. You can't come back from that, God. Watch me. Oh, see, I always saw that differently. Okay. I always saw that as God's way of pissing the enemy off just even more. Like how frustrated could it be to get down to the last eight people? (laughs) Yeah. And then you lose. Yeah. Right. That, that's like having double kings and, and checkers <laughs> and your opponent still beats you and you had two kings. Yeah. Like, how does that happen? That's like having double queens in chess. <laughs> right. You can't lose if you have double it's, queens. It's, it, you couldn't make, you couldn't be dumb enough to lose <laughs> with double queens. Wait, I, I haven't lost with double queens, have I? That I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, so you have that happen with Noah? Yeah. You have um, the, why am I drawing a blank? I can see it in my brain. I just can't get it into words. Moses. Mm-hmm. He's the one child that they put down the Nile. Dude, a fresh baby. You were talking about how baby fat is really appetizing. Hey, hey, there's no reason to bring up my ailment. You, you, you put baby fat in a basket and send it down the Nile? There's things that want to eat it. Right. There's but things this, that eat stuff more lean than that. Right. But this one child put in the basket, sailing down the Nile all by himself, was the one person who was who ended up coming back and and being the the mouthpiece of God to save an entire nation from slavery. Yeah, I think it all I, I think it massively frustrates and angers the enemy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it provides an opportunity for 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 people who are committed to God to exercise faith, which he rewards. So, you know, there are multiple tiers to why wait to the, the last minute. Mm-hmm. And it provides an opportunity for people to change. Yes. You know, there's a lot of things at play. It's not he waited to the last minute because he's cruel, because he wanted to see destruction, because he was sleeping to switch. It's not any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if we could sit on the throne and actually God's throne and see things from that perspective, our consideration of all things in play would probably blow our mind's capacity to, to process. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. And you'd have to have all these things in play in your, in your analysis, your calculus of the situation in order to make a reasonable assessment when answering the question, well, why would God just allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at everything that is going on first. Yeah. And then determine from that perspective, not just from, well, can't you see what's happening, God? You know, it's, it's a totally different perspective. Right. 
So imagine how frustrated the enemy is, right? So from the Tower of Babel, all the nations got divided. And you, you have this, this lineage, right? You're trying to, to hold true to your pagan satanic ideals. And then you disguise yourself as Jews. And then you take over the banking industry. And you move into positions of power. And you foment World War I and World War II. And you're coming to the culminating event, right? Uh-huh. Six-day war, attack happens on this little ship. You've launched from the aircraft carrier, the attack that is going to cause World War III. And one sailor shot up six times and a coax cable thwarts all your plans. Right. You, you aren't happy about that. You know what I imagine? My mind's a little twisted. Okay. I imagine at that moment, mm-hmm. Satan is so messed up. He's like, Jesus Christ. He's like, ah, I hate that name. <laughs> but he doesn't know what else to say, right? That's funny. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you get it twice. Not only do you mess up, even the very name that you call on as an expletive <laughs> irritates you because you don't want to hear it no way. And then he shows up. He's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. you, you're losing again, are you? <laughs> mm. Oh, you didn't see that one coming, did you? Ah, maybe you should. Maybe we should plan better. <laughs> yeah, I told you you would never win, but here we go again. Yeah, you just Thanks keep on playing. trying. The coax cable. Can you believe it, Gabriel? The whole coax cable. <laughs> Watch this. Great, I can't believe it. As he walks off, it disappears. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. That's that's funny. It, it's nuts. Scripture anticipates. Uh, wars and the, the attacks of the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. So Psalms 18.2 tells us that the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior, my God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me in my place of safety. You don't need all of those things. If you're not at war. If you're not at war. Exactly. And and somebody out there might be asking, well, bad, bad stuff still happens. Well, well there, there is a... Um, a both and type of situation, right? He is our fortress, our savior, but he doesn't necessarily save us from everything physical, right? Like we're still physical. We have our own lives. We have our own will. We have our own responsibility. So we have our end of the deal that we have to hold up. But for all the things that we can't control, that's where he comes in and protects us. All the spiritual attacks and those types of things. But you've, you've got to use them for that. A shield isn't doing you any good unless you pick it up. Right. And unless you're Captain America. Because <laughs> then you can take a shield, you could throw it. <laughs> and it come back. That was dramatic. That's funny. But we, we have to remember, like I was saying before, where we put our trust. We can trust God. We can't necessarily, I would just say, period. We can't trust human institutions, not blindly. We should be asking questions. Not completely, either. Yes, not completely. There has to be a level of skepticism. There has to be a level of healthy questioning. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be a level of, uh, let me investigate this and check this out. Because as soon as we grant unfettered, unrestricted, confidence in these institutions, we have immediately set ourselves up for not just failure or disappointment. Mm-hmm. We've set ourselves up to be manipulated. Right. And it doesn't matter who you listen to. No one should be beyond reproach. Right. And 
Um, the Great Deception's uh, slogan is question everything. I, I'd, I'd take it a notch up. I'd say question everything, but you also got to look for a resolution to it. It's mm. easy to just sit on the couch and go, probably not. I don't believe that. You know, I don't think that's accurate. But then to take that next step to go, well, what is accurate? Well, what is the truth behind it? What is the deception? Yeah. You know, we there is a cooperative effort between us and God because we are responsible for the physical domain. Right. So we got we got to be a little bit like vanilla ice about it. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a problem, yo, we'll solve it. <laughs> that being said, Jason, I don't know if I told you this, but Jonathan, being not yet two, uh-huh. has constructed a a three word sentence. Really? Yes. Okay. Before it was two words, a blue ball. We're like, ah, he's putting words together. Glad it wasn't plural. Right. Just blue ball, right? Okay. Well, the three word is um, ice, ice, baby. Are you serious? I kid you not. My mom has this little like dancing snowman uh-huh. that you hit a button and it's a parody. It's actually talking about snow. Okay. But the, the hook is still ice, ice, baby. Does he point to himself on the baby? No. Okay. He just says baby. But then he tries to do that. <laughs> ice, ice. Baby. Like, he can't get the rhythm down, but he knows it. I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. I'm proud of you and a little bit ashamed at the same time. Mm, them jeans is coming through, huh? <laughs> that's priceless. Wow, that's hurtful. <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, we should be able to look at problems and solve it without requiring or acting expecting a governing agency to do so because God doesn't even do that. God does not do for us what we can do for ourselves. Right. He'll actually help you through and he gives you the confidence that, that you'll be safe in the protection from spiritual works of the enemy, but he's not going to do all the work for you. Right. There's a lot of effort that we have to put in. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he asked people to go help and take the grave clothes off of them. They could do that. But you know, they couldn't call them up from the dead. Right. So we have to take responsibility for our lives and whatever is within our power to do it, that's our responsibility to do. The other stuff, we can rely on God God to handle. Yeah, it's a, it's a cooperative effort. Right. But that physical space, that ground that he's given us to defend, we can't give it up. Absolutely. And that's why that's the second rule. Mm-hmm. You don't cede any ground to your enemy. Once you capture it, you maintain it. Yes. Because the enemy's trying to claw his way back to get as much territory back as he can. And that's why we use the, the biblical counteroffensive strike package. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, strike packages sound like offense. It sounds like we're going to be delivering ordinance on station. Mm-hmm. And that's good because you don't want to just be behind your shield taking fire. You could do that. But then you want to return fire. Yes. This is where you get the authorization to do that. Scripture gives us three mandates on how we're supposed to engage and address our enemy. You have to, number one, expose the position. That's Ephesians 5.11 that gives you that authorization. It says, have no fellowship with the works of darkness, but you actually have to expose them. That requires rule number one. It requires getting an education. 
right? You yes. have to know your war doctrine so that you understand because we're dealing with spiritual things. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to explain what the enemy's doing in the in the celestial realm, mm-hmm. if you will, but also how that manifests in the natural realm, how it manifests in agendas, how it manifests in geopolitics, how it manifests in the things that we see on the news. You have to be able to point that out. Then you have to you have the second authorization, which is to oppose them. Get that from James 5, 7. Subject yourself to the authority of Scripture and then use Scripture's authority to resist the devil, not your own opinion. You use what Scripture says. Again, that's what reiterates rule number one, educate yourself with the war doctor. Once you get those two, you expose it, you resist it, then you get the best part, which is you have to tear down these arguments. My favorite. But it's also where people get the most anxious many times because mm-hmm. they don't want to have the conversation. But 2 Corinthians 10.5 says you got to demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true. And, and, and by that very mechanism, it keeps people from knowing God. Right. So as a serious follower of Christ, we're required to have and engage in those conversations. Yep. They might feel weird. People might might look at it as funny, small price to pay. Yep. Got to like, do it. If we were in it, if there was, I like to say this, if there was a a burning, if we were in a hotel mm-hmm. and there's a fire, I mean, sure enough, good fire. Not like that lady who walked downstairs, oh, Lord, it's a fire. I said, oh, Lord, Jesus, it's a fire. <laughs> then I ran out. I didn't grab no shoes or nothing, Jesus. I ran for my life. And then the smoke got me. I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> but I mean like a real fire. And you had to wake somebody up. You really wouldn't care that they looked at you weird. Like, what are you talking about? Right. You're going to yell at them. If you don't hurry up and get you, get your behind out of here, you're going to be dead. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense of urgency. I, I, I don't think we all feel that urgency which means we think that we don't really have to have that conversation. Somebody else will really, you have to have that conversation with people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you can't have that conversation, you don't feel comfortable, you're ill-prepared, then maybe you can rely on an alternative on a supplement. You know, that's where people can rely on, on people like you and me. Right. But it doesn't replace them having to have those conversations. It's true. It's important because we all have a sphere of influence that we've been afforded. Mm-hmm. We have people within that sphere that were that are more likely to listen to us than they are someone else. Right. Everybody that's listening to our voice now can reach people that we can't. Exactly. Great point. And it's abs- that that seems to be the way that God likes to move throughout His collection of followers. Mm-hmm. It's it's a team effort. You work together. Not just put it all on one. It's not on all. It's not all on us, and it's not all on him. But that means you got to do two things. This takes us to rule three. You got to pray like it's all up to God and work like it's all up to us, because we can't always readily see where those lines are. Right. So we got to put the hard work in, like it's all dependent on what we're doing, and pray about everything. Take everything to God, like He's the only one that's doing it. That's the best way to navigate this. So some stuff that we can pray about. I think that we can pray that that we're given eyes to see the enemy behind world events. Like when we get the news, when we get the propaganda, to be able to 
Pray that God supernaturally reinforces our perception to these events, that we can see those patterns, we can see the lies, we can see the, the, the word magic and the way that they go about it to what's really sitting behind them. I like that. I think we should pray for the courage to step up and do what's right, to step up and talk, to step up and, and, and take action as well as we can against the particular agendas that are put in place, whether it be movies or the things that are happening in the school or world events, depending on who we are. But in that, we need to keep in mind that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the, the will to, to march on despite the presence of fear. That's good. Yeah. Because you say that I don't have good sense. So, so in a it's lot of only ways, a relation to a few things, right? But I was talking to my wife about this the other day. I said because she, she's got good sense. So I'm like, in in situations like this, you have the capacity to be way more brave than I do. Just because I'm oblivious to these things and swimming around in shark filled water, because you know what, they probably won't eat me. That's not bravery. That's just whatever that is. You've you've got some pretty interesting Lack of good sense. <laughs> but yeah, if you have things that make you nervous or anxious, that's where courage comes in. Those are the brave people. Thanks, man. Yeah. Are you I'm talking with your wife about that? Hmm? You were talking with your wife about that? Yeah. That's interesting. I, pray, I think that we should pray that God brings people into our life to begin to build a community so we can help each other overcome life's trials. We are communal beings. And it's easy when you believe the propaganda and when you believe what they're saying that everyone is out here about dissension and separation and isolation, and it's not true. I think it was Rob Schneider that said, the world's a whole lot different if you turn off your TV and go talk to your neighbor. Yeah. I heard Dave Matthews kind of say something very similar. Yeah. With all the division, if you look across this concert, there's a whole bunch of people from a whole different walks of life, and all we're focusing on is good music, having fun, and dancing, mm-hmm. or at least what they call dancing. And nobody's on the political stuff. Right. It was interesting. I don't know if I talked about this on a different podcast episode, but me and my wife had to go to the bank real early in the morning one day. Okay. And there's six or seven people standing outside the bank before the doors are open. So, like, we all got business to do, and clearly we're in a hurry because nobody goes to a bank early for fun. Right. You have multiple ages. You have multiple genders. You have multiple ethnicities. All standing there with business to do, and we're in a hurry. And not one person pushed to get through that door. When they opened it, we all looked at each other and kind of just, you know, in, in, in the order that it seemed like we showed up, we okay. held the door open for, for each person. That's cool. And just something that small, I was like, there's a lot more unity here than what they want us to think. Right, right. And, and it's important to remember that. So I think we should pray that God brings those people into our life. I agree. So what can we do to work? Pay attention. They say it like that for a reason. It's going to cost you something. You got to pay something. Pay attention. It's not easy, but life is too dangerous. The world is too dangerous. The enemy is too dangerous to just hide your head in the sand. I think another thing is be willing to be wrong. What do you mean by that? There, I noticed, especially some in the podcast community take the stance that, well, I'm not 100% on it, so I just don't know. I won't put my chips over there. Okay. You don't have to be 100% on something to think that it's right. Like we were talking to, to Julia last week about Flat Earth mm-hmm. and our stance on it. And we're like, well, this is what we think, but we're definitely um, able to be 
you can change our mind, you know, given, you know, a set of evidence or whatever. We haven't taken a stance. I have no idea what it is. No, we, we believe that it's round or whatever, but we could be wrong. Like that's an okay position to be in. I don't have all the answers. I'm 51% that this is how it is, but it it takes a certain amount of, of bravery because the social scrutiny of looking stupid or having to admit that you thought something that isn't real is, is difficult for a lot of people. So you got to be brave, but it's okay to be wrong. We can be wrong in our, in our striving to be true. It's a necessary process to be wrong about things if we're always getting closer to truth. Okay. Like shedding skin. Yeah. If you're never shedding falsehoods or, or ideas that you held that weren't necessarily accurate, you're probably not growing, probably not getting closer to truth. Real good point. Thanks. In kind, if we're praying that God puts people in our life to achieve particular goals, we also need to be looking for people to come into our life. Like it's, it'd be a mistake to just sit inside and go, God, send me someone. Well, how are they going to get to you? You're behind closed doors. Like it's, I said, send them. It's another one of those both and situations. Go out and look for people. That was not the prayer. Put the work in. You got to do both. <laughs> right. As I'm looking, Lord, bring people to me that are going to produce this community that allows for the, the most human flourishing and bringing glory to the name of God. That's what we want. Sounds like an active prayer. Yes. As opposed to a passive one. Yes. And then the other one is we have to refuse. I had a little trouble with the wording of this because like it's stuff you can do, but if you put something not to do in a work area, I was like, I don't know. Refuse to just blindly believe. People, everyone out there on the TV wants you to believe something. Buy Coke, buy a Honda, buy a Nissan, buy some Cheez-Its. You know, trust us, do what we say. You have to actively work against trusting the propaganda, trusting the institutions. It takes work. If you want to do something, consider why and make sure it's something you really want to do and not something you've actually been um, manipulated into wanting. Right, right. Speaking of manipulating people. Wow. Of your own free will and volition, maybe you could share the show. That would be a good idea. Maybe it could be a good idea. We could be wrong, you know, but you could share the show. In the spirit of Drax from 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 Marvel, uh, continue sharing the show. Uh, or I do you one better. Continue sharing the show. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, listen, a lot of people are getting the word out. And we need people to continue to do that. They've been doing an amazing job. We're getting a lot of feedback from people on, on different episodes. And they even talked to us about how you know the fact that they've shared it and the fact that things are going out. And that's so important because it helps to not only get this information out, it also helps to defeat the algorithm. Mm-hmm. And the algorithm is one of the principal means by which truth is being suppressed in this modern world, in this, this digital information age. Right. So doing the the legwork and doing the sharing is so critical. So while we're saying share the show, we're also saying thank you for the sharing that you've done and please continue to do that. Yes. It's so vitally important to to the health of the show. Mhm. Top 20% of podcasts shared globally, we didn't have nothing to do with that. Right, that, that was, was all, all you. All the all listeners. You. Yep. Another thing you can do though, consider joining our Patreon. 
we, we try to put some good stuff in there. We got lots of people in there. Incredible growth. Thank you so much. They've even given us feedback, corrected us on monarchies and governments and dictatorships. Love and the feedback. Super cool. Super cool. We, we are benefiting just as much, or I hope that everyone else that joins the Patreon is benefiting just as much as we are. We're loving the interaction. Right. Loving right. the support. Uh, there's... You can find us at ORPpodcast.com. Our Patreon is Patreon of the same name, patreon.com slash ORPpodcast. And the three tiers that we have for Patreon is Cover Fire, five bucks. We'll get you uh, all the links and resources and full-length episodes of the show. Move Up One, Overwatch, seven bucks. Gives you everything of Cover Fire, but then also you get the behind-the-scenes studio notes that we actually look at when we do the episode. And then the big boy, Bring the Rain, Gives you everything that we have to offer on Patreon. First two tiers plus a monthly Zoom call with both Jason and I. Should be lots of fun. You better buckle up for that call. Buckle up. It's going to be fun. But here's the last thing you can do. Remind yourself of what scripture tells us, which is that we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us. And we have a community of believers all over the country and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. For one day, there will be peace. One day, these maniacal tyrants will be brought to justice. One day, we will be cultivated by the loving hand of perfect authority, which is our God. And one day, the blood, the sweat, and the tears will be worth it. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our savior in chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us, but we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, you take fire, I expect you to return fire. Now I need you to keep your eye on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.